I'm good. I'm still a little sleepy from having stayed up until like three o'clock in the morning watching oh, the the Cubs gosh. win the World Series the other day. But it was worth it, and I have no regrets. You still haven't recovered two days later. Well, my problem is I was teaching. I had a Mythgard Academy class that night, so I which uh. didn't end until midnight. So I recorded it, but I, I was so determined. I, so I started watching that four and a half hour game at midnight. <laughs> on, on Wednesday oh night. Now I, I had it recorded so I could fast forward through the rain delay and through the commercial breaks and the pitching changes and everything else. So I was able to watch it in under three the four and a half hour game in under three hours. But uh, well, but, but but still, it was it was, avoid, it was late. Did you did you successfully avoid spoilers? I did. I I, I put I, at the beginning of class I gave a special plea to my students. I'm like, if any of you has the game on in the background, please don't make the faintest reference to what is going on in the game and then I just turned it on as soon as I stopped class so fortunately my students were gracious and did not uh, uh, deliver any spoilers oh thank god yeah yeah this is my this is by the way this is this is I'm going to attempt to do this for the election. I'm just going to attempt to not know anything about oh I've it. been just, working on that yeah. for months yeah I I, I sometimes we're, we're, gonna be, um, we're going to be doing Ostanlas in Lotro on Tuesday night there we go oh yeah, yeah, it's exactly. No conversation on the progress of the election will even be permitted in that uh, venue. That's right. Um, It'll be a yeah. requirement. Auto ban. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, okay, so uh, we have uh, uh, we have a, a fun episode to discuss today. First, two uh, quick announcements. One, just thanks to everyone who participated in our fundraising campaign, uh, which ended last weekend. And uh, it just ended with uh, not only a great deal of fun in the webathon, but a uh, the a, a, a record setting uh, fundraising campaign. We have raised uh, forty four thousand dollars by the end of the campaign, wow. um, which, uh, considering our annual goal for Signum University for fundraising for the year is fifty thousand, is is awesome. We're we're you know almost ninety percent of the way to our fundraising goal for the year already. Um, and that is really where we were hoping to be, uh, you know, at the end of the fundraising campaign, really even higher than 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 my expectations. So I am uh, I am delighted. Signum is in a is in a is in a great place for 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 moving forward, um, you know, here this, uh, you know, for for the rest of the year. And I, I'm very grateful to everyone who who donated and uh, really 
really excited about the year to come. So so thanks everyone for that. If you missed the webathon or elements of the webathon uh, that you might be interested in, um, they are all or almost all should be available. I think uh, by now they've been they've been being put up on YouTube um, over the course of the week. So if you missed, for instance, my discussion of uh, Stranger Things, the Netflix series, uh, uh, my discussion with Brenton Dickinson, which was a lot of fun, um, you know that's up. My uh, if you didn't see my interview, my Q and A session. Um, with Maggie and Sophie, the the Silmarillion prodigies. Dave, did you see that, by the way? Or did you see any of that? Oh, my. Even if you don't watch the whole thing, Dave, you should totally go. uh, go. I I was telling the people who are watching live, I didn't do that segment with the intention of trying to make everyone feel bad about themselves. (laughs) Um, This was, so, Dave, I was interviewing a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old girl, right? Um, Uh And answering their question, uh, and answering their really smart questions about the Lord of the Rings, Silmarillion, Book of Lost Tales, and Unfinished Tales. <laughs> it was amazing. Oh my gosh! I know, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they, uh, the, they, I'm they. To remember what some of the questions were. Yeah, well, like for instance, you know, she was she, one question she asked. She was like, "Why exactly do the do the ring wraiths not like water?" And I started yeah. talking about the Fort of Bruin Inn, right, and what went on there, and the, you know how you have both the water and like the magic of Elrond at work there as well. And then I kind of paused, and I'm like. Wait a second, but you're also referring to the passage in Unfinished Tales where Tolkien in The Hunt for the Ring says that, that they, they didn't like to cross running water, right? And she's like, yes, that's what I was thinking of. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> anyway, it's just it's just awesome. So uh, it, it's if... Uh, um, I, I was tempted. I didn't, in the end, I didn't want to make it, I didn't want to make it sound like I was kind of, you know, bringing them out as sideshow freaks or something, but I was really tempted to title that segment. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Um, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was, uh, they're, 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 where, they're kind of amazing. Where did you, where, how did, how did this come to be? Well, this came to be because I was down in West Virginia this summer and I gave a talk at a Fellowship of the Ring themed camp, that summer camp that uh, that this church wow. was holding down there. I was just like I was in the area and uh, I, I I went down and, and, and gave a talk at their camp. And so they were both campers and um, her dad, who is the one who had invited me because um, he, he listens to the podcast and stuff. Um, and he had mentioned he's like, you know. My Maggie's probably going to corner you with questions at some point, and I was like, "Okay, all right, I'm ready." And uh, and she comes up to me with her sheaf of papers and uh, and starts peppering me with questions. And just right away, her questions were just of of a kind that I never heard an 11 year old pose before. I mean, things about like composition sequence, like when in Tolkien's process did he come up with these particular characters or ideas compared to other characters and ideas and i'm like i'd never even met an 11 year old who 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 like could begin to think in that way you know about the much less like you know not only have read the material that she obviously had read she had obviously read her very first question no her second question revealed that she had read the book of lost tales she was asking like how is it you know uh, her, her second question was um, Gothmog is the son of Morgoth. What's up with that, right? And I'm like, 
whoa, <laughs> that's in the Book of Lost Tales. Anyway, so so it's not just the, how much she had read and how much she had obviously understood of 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 what she had read, but um, the the the. The, the 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 level of sophistication the the sort of understanding of like the 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 cre- you know Tolkien's creative process and uh, it was just I've never seen anything in that in anyone under 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 college age basically you know to to really be asking questions like that is is, is entirely remarkable older like hey 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 kid why don't you go outside and play <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, in her defense, this was happening uh, like in the bushes outside as they were outside and playing. But anyway, it's it was anyway. So as soon as I was I had that conversation with her, I was like, "Okay, we need to continue this, but we need to continue this in a podcast session because this is this is not something I I, I, I think other people will be interested to hear this conversation. So we should we should do this Um, anyway. So. so yeah, that was that was that that was that was really fun. Anyway, so like I said, all those all those uh, all those things are up on our Signum University YouTube channel. I I commend them to you there. The other thing that I would announce is uh, the 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 shocking, stunning news that came out on Wednesday evening. Um, not uh, the Cubs winning the World Series. Something even more unexpected, which is the next Mythgard Academy book that won the election is. The Return of the Shadow, the next volume of the History of the Earth series, was officially elected. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in a stunning upset. The second one, too? Is there a, was there a runner-up for the second book? Um, oh, well, the other finalists were uh, To Say Nothing of the Dog and uh, uh, Boethius, Consolation of Philosophy, actually made it to the finalist list. It's been nominated many times. It's made it to the finalist list for the first time. Um, but uh, but but we're, we're, we're definitely doing Return of the Shadow. And uh, we will will have a chance to then come back. The next book, of course, as always, the way we've been doing it is that we uh, the okay. The the rule is not that we do one Tolkien book and then one non-Tolkien book. The rule is that no two books by the same we can't do two books by the same by any one author in a row, which functionally means that we do one Tolkien book and one non-Tolkien book in uh, uh, in succession as we go through. So. Uh, yeah, Brian says when we're done with the History of Middle-Earth series, we should just start over. And, you know, Brian, actually, it's one of the things that people were asking, like, could we go back and just do the Lord of the Rings again? Because it's been it will have been so That's long really since I did them. And, you know, I'm like, hey, you know, actually, it's kind of a good idea. <laughs> yeah. And once you finish that, it's like, well, probably we should go back through the, through uh, the History of Middle-Earth. Uh, well, the, this, this is like Middle-Earth again. Welcome to my life. Like, this is what I do. It's exactly what I do. I'm starting, I'm starting, like, we're in November now, so I'm starting to get excited, like, to the point, oh, it's almost time to read The Hobbit again. (laughs) Like, it's been months since I read The Hobbit. I always read The Hobbit in, like, January and February, so, uh, you know, somewhere around then. Um, Though I've decided next year I'm going to, I'm going to embark, I've never done this before, uh, but I'm going to embark on an even more ambitious Tolkien reading project, uh, which is I'm going to attempt to read uh, the complete works of Tolkien next year in, in at least roughly chronological order. I've never done that. 
So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with Book of Lost Tales Volume One next year and uh, and try to go through. So like inserting things like the Fall of Arthur and and Sigurd and Gudrun and Kulervo and uh, and all that stuff. So actually, I'm probably gonna start with Kulervo instead of the Book of Lost Tales. Come to think on it, um, but uh, anyway. So yeah, that's 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 uh, that's my just for you know in my uh, in my in my private reading. Uh, Sounds um, like madness. It'll be fun. <laughs> It'll be fun. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Karita thinks I should start a hashtag. Yeah, I probably should. I probably should. I should probably actually invite every. Now, if I were really scrupulous, I would make auto recordings of all the poetry and like intersperse the poems in when they were composed. But I don't think I have enough time to do that yet. So uh, I'm think I'm just going to do like just do it in the published chunks rather than. Rather than trying to do it like story by story and and uh, and poem by poem, but uh, anyway, it is just a pleasure reading it, adventure after all, not a not a rigid scholarly project. <coughs> all right, but speaking of rigid scholarly projects, um, let's move on to the film episode. So, all right, um, last time we talked about the trial of Melkor, and um, this. Today we are covering uh, the complicated time in which Melkor is sowing the seeds of rebellion among, you know, this is like the calm before the storm episode, right? In episode 10, we're going to have conflict breaking out. Um, Conflict, of course, is the word that always comes up. Uh, in these discussions on the discussion boards and things. People have been wanting conflict. We'll, we will get conflict. Conflict will abound, beginning in the next episode. Um, but um, not quite yet. So um, so in this episode, we are, we are preparing that. Um, so that means how I like to think about this, or at least how I, how I do think of it in order to try to keep things clear in my head, is trying to remember what do we need to do in order to prepare for next time, um, in order to, to get to the point where we're ready to have Feanor drawing his sword on Fingolfin and getting banished uh, to Formanos, you know, or at least out of Valmar and, and uh, Tyrion uh, by the end of next time, what has to happen? between now and then. And there are some big things that need to happen between now and then, and there are some small things that we need to make sure we remember to squeeze in before now and then. Obviously, one of the big things is the forging of the Silmarils, which we'll get to. Um, but I want to start with the issue of sort of the unrest of the Noldor. Um, and I wanna, I'm want to i interested to hear what you guys think about how we should be depicting. So there are two separate things, right? And I'd kind of like to think about them separately. Um, that is, the 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 progress of the Noldor, um, the kind of the moral progress of the Noldor, and the influence of Mel- the influence and the activity of Melkor himself. I certainly don't think that we should be depicting the Noldor as. I mean, there's a kind of crude parallel, right, between the uh, unrest of the Noldor. You know, like the you know, what. Between what Melkor does with the Noldor and what, say, like the serpent does with Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, the, the, there's a kind of rough parallel there. I mean, we, this is a fall, right? This is a paradisical environment. This is this is a fall, and we do have a tempter figure, right? So, as I say, there is a kind of crude parallel between the two. Um, 
But I don't want to depict the Noldor as innocent in the way that we are meant to understand. We seem to be meant to understand that Eve was innocent, right? Um, so, uh, so what do we do? So let's think about the Noldor first. Let's, let's leave Melkor for a second. Let's talk about the Noldor first. How would you guys want to depict the Noldor? We are, we've already talked about the Noldor. The main thing about the Noldor is they're, 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 they're makers, right? Um, and so we have already talked about them making gems. We needed them making gems in the previous episode. We've had the, uh, you know, time with Feanor at his, uh, his, you know, with his wife and his father-in-law at their, uh, at their craftsmanship, right? So we have, we've seen some with Feanor, some, some sort of higher end craftsmanship already at work. Um, but, um, but, I think it's loving too well the works of their hands kind of direction, right. don't you think? It, you'd think that that, <laughs> that would, would be, be the direction that the fall would... would right. You know, but of course we have to uh, remember where they're falling from, right? Where they're falling from is not... It's not a question of the love of the works of their own hands being like, increasing to excess, necessarily. It needs to change in kind as well. Do you see what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. Um, uh because I mean, one of the things that we learn is that I mean, they always loved their works and everything, um, but they gave them away freely. The, what changed is not like we used to love our works, kind of, but now we we're, we're we're really totally attached to our works. The difference was they they began to hoard them more, right? Um, I think that one thing that we've mentioned, which I think uh, works really well, is the. Uh, the continued escalation of self-adornment among the Noldor and mm-hmm. in the city of Tyrion as well. Um, and it would be nice... I was also thinking of a... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, was, it would be, I was just going to say quickly, it'd be nice to kind of contrast to see the new dwellings of the Vanyar up on Tenequitil, which should be, I think, simple in the extreme, um, as, as, as to, to, to provide a kind of a contrast... Because uh, it would be easy over there in Valmar, right? I mean, it's easy to think of it as like everything is gorgeous and splendid in Val in, in Valinor, right? Um, but actually, I think it kind of shouldn't be. You know, I think that the 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 Teleri and to a greater extent the Vanyar should be very visibly less gorgeous than the Noldor and their works and their place. I was also thinking about um, the. Um the seeping in of, of a degree of haughtiness in, in the Noldor's attitudes. Uh-huh. I mean, loving too well the works of their hands could also create uh, hierarchy, judgmentalism, you know, uh, yep. uh, who's a better artisan, who's a worse artisan, um, almost class kind of things. So there's like a beginning of that kind of deterioration, I suppose you could call it. So not only are they hoarding what they make, but they're also judging, right. you know, Right. Level of quality and, right. and, and that kind of thing. So you're starting to see that kind of. Could we have um, some kind of a conversation between, like, a Noldo, a Teleri, and a Vanyar or something? Where, like, yeah. you know, because here, here's what I'm thinking, and I'm not sure exactly practically how to bring this about. But what I'm thinking is it would be really nice to ha- to show how the Noldor are beginning. Like, they're so wrapped up in what they do, right? In in their making. Um that I would think the natural temptation would be to begin to feel that 
making things, that sub-creating in the way that they do, is not just the thing that they do and the thing that they are called to, but it's like what one is supposed to do, right? So, so for instance, when the Teleri are just kind of hanging out by the water singing, you know, when the Vanyar, like I would think that one of the questions that the Noldo would have for the Vanyar and the and the uh, and the Teleri would be, so what do you guys do even, right? I mean, like what what what. What have you? So okay, so you yeah. guys, so yeah. Vanyar, y'all moved out, right? Y'all moved out and went up to Tenequitil. What have you accomplished, right? What have you done up there? And they, they, there's not nothing, right? They don't, they don't have, uh, they don't have nothing to 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 show for themselves. The Teleri have their ships, right? The the Vanyar presumably have poems of which we know little. Right, at least we, of which we're told little, basically, um, but um, but maybe the Vanyar don't like you know have public readings of their poems. You know, maybe they <laughs> maybe they reserve their poetry primarily for you know like Manway and Varda and the other. You know, like it's like an in-house thing up there on Tenequitil. And so the Noldor don't really see it or hear it or certainly don't exactly value it as much. But I would think that that would be the that seems to me the kind of the avenue for moral slippage with the Noldor, right? Mm-hmm. First, to, to sort of rightly think highly of what they do, because what they do is indeed objectively awesome, right? And then to to begin to feel like it is the thing, it is the best thing that one can be doing. And then to be thinking those people who aren't doing those things that we're doing are really kind of doing less than we are. Right. And then... Or we are the best. Exactly. What we're doing is the best, therefore we are the best. Exactly. Exactly. Um, That would... um, That that does seem to me to be a very logical kind of moral progression and a haughtiness. I like that, that, that concept, Trish of haughtiness, um, having that kind of creeping in, um, increasingly okay. to their, you know, that because it is a smallish step from f- feeling, <clears throat> feeling good about yourself, you know, thinking highly of yourself and thinking meanly of others. Um, right. It's not and an inevitable step. Again, you yeah. Know, the, the yeah. Consistent theme and token. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Marielle is suggesting a discussion between Indus, uh, and her daughter Irame. Of course, Indus is our, is our, she's always our token Vanyar, right? She's absolutely our (laughs) go-to Vanyar. But ironically, she's not even going to live with them, right? So she's not even going to be one of them, but presumably she's still like visits, you know, like, you know, her, her, her family and stuff up there. So, uh, so she would not be she would still be able to kind of be a spokesperson for the Vanyar perspective. Um, but, um, but you're, Mario wants to bring in her daughter, Irame. Sure. Yeah. Why not? My, I, I will say my only, my only concern with introducing the extra, uh, sisters and daughters, um, uh, I mean, there are extra sisters and daughters, and it seems a shame not to bring them in to increase the female quotient in the cast. I, I agree. But we have to be careful that, like, we don't... We have run into the problem before where we want always to add and never to subtract characters. 
and it leads to trouble. I, as it is, one of the challenges we have for this episode and the last episode and the next episode are how do we possibly introduce all the characters we're going to want to have introduced, you know, by the time we by the time we get there. Um, you know, the third generation in particular, that's one of the things that I hope to get to today is talking about which of the third generation are we really going to introduce and how uh, during this because we we kind of we we need them to begin to be familiar by the time we get over there to Middle Earth. I mean, um, oh, I see. Mariel says the discussion board wants Irame uh, so that we can kill her at the kinslaying. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> well, I'm all for that. Um, uh, uh, the more named characters that people like a lot that we can kill at the kinslaying, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Um, <laughs> Uh, because again, like I, I, I as, as I've said before, you yourself to the viewers. <laughs> I want, I want, yeah, and that's how we'll get the press comparing us to George R. R. Martin. And and uh, and and that, of course, is uh, always our it's goal. Yeah, exactly. Um, but no, I mean the point is the point is that like we there are certain tragic moments that we need to that we need to to to, to hit. Yeah, and I will say. One of the effects in the published Silmarillion, the kinslaying, the description of the kinslaying, like, as it's happening, the depiction of the kinslaying isn't nearly as sad as all, like, the, kin, the, the significance of the kinslaying and the horror of the kinslaying is something that kind of grows over time, over the course of, at least I find that, right? I mean, uh-huh. it's, it's awful when it happens, but I've never been, like, tempted to weep at the kinslaying. In fact, like the burning of the ships always hits me much harder emotionally than the actual kinsling. Um, like it's obviously a horrible thing, but it doesn't have that kind of emotional power. It doesn't have the kind of emotional power that say like, you know, the, the, the sad things that happen, uh, like the slaying, the killing of Beleg or something like that. Right. I mean, it's much more tragic and awful and sad. At least I find it so in, in, in you know, my, my own response to it in reading than the kinslaying is. Um, the kinslaying is such a big deal and it, we keep coming back to it throughout the rest of the whole rest of the story and everyone keeps alluding to it. So it's its status as a really huge, tragic, big deal is well established and it begins even within the story, like n- not not to readers, but to the characters in the story. The kinslaying becomes a mythic idea. Right. Um and that that's... Yeah, that's that's true. You you when you have characters reacting to it like Thingol, it's all but it's always in the abstract, right? Like right. oh, you participated in the Kingsling. Right. Which you never which you never have is a scene of someone saying, you know, like a like shouting, "You killed my brother!" Yes, to die. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And and I think for this really to yeah, work we well. That. And we need that. We need that. And 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 again, I I feel like you know. So when when I am so callously uh, rejoicing in the, the 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 killing off of characters in the kinslaying, the reason I I think that's important. The reason I think that is really an end gained, is that we need in order for the kinslaying to have the status that it's meant to have, that it obviously is 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 you know should have through not just now. But for years, in our terms, literally for years down the road, that should be one of the things that people are always remembering. Um, yeah. Not just for pure sensational value, like like the Red Wedding in, in George R. R. Martin, but but just for its for its for its tragedy, right? For its sadness, it should be it should be able to be invoked as a memory of grief, 
you know, for our for our viewers. And so, yes, so so yes, the more attractive characters um, who are killed off, the better. Um. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, it needs to reverberate. In that absolutely. Sense. Reverberate down the ages. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Down the ages, through the seasons, all that kind of thing. Um, okay. So. So okay. So we want Irame so she can get so she can get killed. That's fine. That's fine. I'm good with that. Um, it makes me wonder if there are any more Teleri we can bring in. I mean, because. Uh, That's what I was thinking. Never mind. Okay, sorry. I was just about to get totally distracted and thinking about the kinslaying. I was just about to ask, what exactly are we going to do with Finarfin and his wife during the... Th- but never mind. Never mind. Kick Not- the can. Kick the can. Kick the can. That is it. That is it. That's, that's, that's down the road. That's down the road. Right um, uh, uh, Yeah, that's next season. So forget about it. Okay, all right. Fine. Um, so... Noldor and their uh, their decline, their unrest and decline. Though, again, I, I come back to the word unrest, which is, of course, in the title of the chapter in the book. Um, it is the unrest of the Noldor. They're going to become restless. Now, part of that is going to be a consequence of Melkor's words. But again, I, I, I don't... I, and here I agree with what seems to... You know, what was... Uh, um, what seemed to be voiced by several people on the discussion board um, that Melkor is should be seen as, you know, sowing seed in a well-plowed field, right? You know, that, that uh, the, the Noldor really are, to mix my metaphor, shockingly, really ripe for his, um, uh, for his influence there. Um, and I, I, th- I do think that we need to establish that. Um, because the Noldor, we're going to undermine the Noldor terribly. If the Noldor are all happy and well-adjusted, and then Melkor starts making comments, and they're all like, hey, yeah, that's right, we're really miserable now, right? I mean, like, that's obviously not what we want. Um, yeah, yeah, um... Yeah. Oh, Marie, that's a good point. Uh, we're going to come back to that later on. Make sure to remind me of that when we get back. To, we're going to when we get to the third generation, folks, or before you leave, whichever comes sooner. <laughs> um, okay. So, what would lead to them being restless? How would we depict restlessness? Wait, I know. I know. I got it. Kelagorm. Right. Let's have the wandering folks because we know they don't just hang out in the city. Right. Part of the part of the spirit of the Noldor, part of the the idea of the Noldor is not just their making things, but their curiosity. Right. Their desire to learn and their desire to know. Um, So some of them are explorers. Right. They're wandering. And there's there's. It's not that there isn't enough room in Valinor, because Valinor actually really is quite large, but there's, they might be thinking about and remembering um, Middle-earth. Some of them would be remembering, some of them would be hearing stories about it. Um, And somebody, I think, Marie, I think it was you, um, I love the idea of having him Feanor make the make the palantiri and be using the palantiri 
to look around in Middle Earth. Um, and he is looking at like the vastness and splendor of Middle Earth and kind of saying, this seems like a kind of a, a small place. Yeah. I mean, like that place is awesome and it's huge. Um, yeah. And there are no Valar, which could be an advantage. <laughs> Actually, hasn't gotten there yet. Not not quite yet. Not quite yet. But yeah, I mean, that desire to have a a realm of one's own. Well, exactly. Exactly. Precursor of Galadriel. I wonder if we could even have a conversation between him and and Nerdanel, which sort of starts to get there, right? Where he could have, you know, a place where he could have room and, you know, not always be you know again not saying an actively negative thing i'm making an actual complaint but uh the desire for freedom right for not being unrestricted um plus think of all the raw materials would be available there yeah absolutely make with all the you know absolutely being fan or he would discount the fact that there would any other beings or animals or beasts or anything affected by you know I mean he wouldn't be thinking of that right 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 so yeah so I think that's definitely a conversation we can have between between Feanor and Nerdinel in this episode um Again, we, we you know we have to be careful not to depict Feanor as like an obviously power hungry scheming guy like you know I need minions. You know that this is not this is not how Feanor is. But again, just that sense of we are, you know, we are caged in a narrow place. Um, he won't yet say it in those terms. He won't yet be thinking in that kind of explicitly critical and negative way. But the the first the first sort of glimmerings of that, and it, and it's positive, right? It's positive. It's it's not that he grudges Valinor yet. <clears throat> it's just that he longs for Middle Earth. Um, you know, maybe some, maybe somebody makes the comment about sort of wishing they could come and go, you know, wish that they weren't, that they could, they, they could, uh, return to enjoy Middle-earth as well as remaining there in Valinor. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and that's interesting. Uh, uh, Karita is suggesting that perhaps the problem could also be a sort of a lack of variety and challenge. Um, you know, maybe we depict the, uh, the, the climate and landscape in Valinor as being not very various, right? We know we have the, the wall of mountains, um, but maybe the rest of Valinor while beautiful is, doesn't really change very much. You know, there, there, there wouldn't really, one wouldn't think there really would be extremes of hot and cold, in Valinor, right? So there wouldn't be extreme seasonal change, probably. Um, especially since we were associating extremes of temperature and stuff with, with Melkor at the beginning. Um, but the, the, the very wild and untamed and rugged and even harsh nature of Middle-earth would be something that would be... He would want to see that, right? He would want to explore that. He would want to, uh, you know, to sort of to learn more about it, to be able to incorporate it into his, into his own works. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Brian Valinor is basically San Diego. That's, that's, uh, that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Actually, no. I lived in San Diego, and I tell you, I lived in the tropics for three years. When I came back to San Diego, I said, "Gosh, it's nice to be someplace where there's a variation." In the weather. <laughs> right. Everybody but, looked at me like I was crazy. Right. Right. Well, but exactly. It, it's in not... the tropics. It's even more this way. It's you true. Know? It's true. It, oh, it doesn't it, matter what time of the year. Yeah, it shouldn't you know? be equatorial, right? I mean, it, 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 yeah, yeah. No, it shouldn't be like that. Um, and there can be the kind of mild changes of season that happen, perhaps. Because, uh, Dave, there are mild changes of season in Southern California, right? Kind of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The trees be, there are trees right. change color and stuff. Yeah, yeah in, the, in the dead of winter, it should probably dip down into the 60s. Wow, yeah. Yeah, so some, sometimes you have to put on a jacket, do you? It's change color, and actually you can go up into the mountains and it, get, it does get cold. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, do people Julian, wear... Julian, yeah. Julian, people live in San Diego, Julian, it snows, Julian. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, exactly. I, I, I like that. I like that. I think that that's, um, that's, and, and, and Marie picking up on exactly what you're saying right now. Marie is saying that there's a bit of a romantic mystique to Middle Earth for the generation of elves born in Valinor and who never, and who never see it. Even as Marie points out, even the memories of the hardships of the journey and the dangers that they faced would have a kind of romantic attraction for the, the Val, you know, the, the second and third generation of, of elves over there in Valinor. Um, absolutely. And that can be, there's no, there's no reason that that can't be in its way, a completely innocent desire and curiosity. In fact, it kind of comes back to the mistake that the Valar made in bringing them over in the first place, right? You know, the, the desire for Middle Earth, the love of Middle Earth is, is, is set in their hearts on purpose, right? I mean, that's, that, that, that is, that is part of their calling that, that is, you know, the Valar are kind of wrong to bring them over. They should be able to go back to Middle Earth. Um, so being reminded of that, and I think if we're reminded of that before we even see Melkor talking about it, it would be a really good thing. Um, both because it shows Melkor as being cunning in picking up on what they're already talking about and using that, right, rather than just being the one to initiate all of them. But it also shows that this is something really about the Noldor rather than them just being simply, um, you know, utterly, manip- you know, totally manipulated from the beginning by Melkor. Right. Also, and it's always, I mean, um, you know, villains, villains, villains become that more, much more interesting when they, when they sort of have a point. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing I think, and it's the thing we can see in his, in the published Silmarillion. Mm-hmm. Not that many of the things that, you know, a, a relatively small percentage of what Melkor tells them are lies. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just like flat untruths. Um, it's not untrue. It's, I mean, it's twisted, but it's not untrue. Um, yep. and that's what makes him more dangerous. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, okay, so, uh. So I, I, so I, I think it's the, the baseline. I think it's really important for us to establish this, the, the unrest of the Noldor and I would say the legitimacy of the unrest of the Noldor. Um, it is not merely, their unrest is not merely uh, the result of their fall. It's in part a cause of their fall. It's, it's, it's the opportunity that's taken to help to bring about their fall. 
Um, but it's also not necessarily, not entirely a, a fallen thing on their part to have these desires and to have this unrest. So Melkor himself, let's talk about Melkor and his activities. Now, the, the first thing I want to address is this sort of this issue. There's, there was some further discussion this week about this question of like deceiving the audience that I have, that I have brought up. And, uh, and, and, and Marie, I, you said it exactly as I would say it, that, that, that your response to that was, was precisely the response that I was going to make before I read yours. So I'll make it again anyway. Um, it's not about actually fooling people. We're not trying to to actually deceive our viewers. What we want to do is we want to make sure that everything that happens is potentially interpretable. Everybody who watches it, almost a hundred percent of the people who want who who watch it, can all be sitting there saying, "He's totally lying, right? This is all an act, right?" And every but everything that he does and says should be consistent with the possible interpretation of it being genuine, of him being genuine. We just don't want, and, and honestly, this is, this is my desire to do this. It's, I'm not, it's not some kind of like, you know, uh, uh, really forced and, and I'm not trying to pull something on our viewers or anything like that. My motivation for this is exactly the same as why we wanted to depict Melkor's fall in the first place and not have him come in a thoroughly evil villain, you know, from literally his first arrival on middle, you know, a thoroughly evil, explicit and open villain from the very beginning. I didn't want to do that because I wanted to, um, I wanted to encourage viewers to be thinking about the process of his fall. How does he get to where he goes? Why is he the way that he is? Tolkien does think about that and does give us some stuff to to go on to think about that. Not only direct information about Melkor, but even more importantly, sort of parallels to Melkor uh, that help us to see this is how bad guys turn into bad guys in Tolkien's world. And therefore, we can kind of extend that to Melkor, even though we have to do that imaginatively in a lot of ways. Um, but anyway, that's, 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 so that's, for me, that's the major thing is we want to, we want to show this to people. We want to, we want, we want this to be an option. We want to show this is something that's legitimately on the table. Okay. Um, no, it, it's not going to happen. And you as viewers probably don't believe that it's really going to happen, but it's a live option. And yes, Brian, you're exactly right. The other consequence of that, the other effect of doing that is to make Manway look less like an idiot. Um, because it's, that's a, as I've said before, that's an objection that a lot of people have. They're like, why is Manway so dumb? How could he possibly be fooled into thinking that Melkor was repentant? I think that if we do this right, um, that isn't a question that our viewers are going to be asking in the same way. Um, and yes, Karita, Karita says, I am that person who will wish against evidence and common sense that the bad guy will be redeemed. Karita, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, currently, in my current pleasure reading, I am rereading Jane Austen. I'm three quarters of the way through Mansfield Park, and I'm exactly in the same place I always am, which is desperately cheering for Henry Crawford. I so want Henry Crawford to reform and marry Fanny. Like, I absolutely want that. Um and I know it's not going to happen, and I know that she's right and I'm wrong, uh, that Fanny's right to reject him, and I'm wrong to want her to give in. But every time, every single time, 
that this happens to me when I'm reading Mansfield Park. So yes, Karina, that's that's exactly the kind of experience I would like for people to be able to have. To like, it's not that you really think it, right? Again, it's not that we're actually tricking people, but we want them to be able to say, you know, I could see how that could happen, right? Or isn't it interesting to think about what might have been had this really come about, right? It's that kind of a glimpse because again, it makes the tragedy meaningful. Right. It may it it it, it creates tragedy, really, where there isn't tragedy. Melkor Melkor isn't a tragic figure in the Silmarillion. I wouldn't. I mean, I like he is in theory. Right. But in his actual the actual effect of the narrative, we're not really asked to view him as a tragic figure. We're invited to view Feanor as a tragic figure. Um, but not Melkor exactly. And, and as we said back in season, you know, from the beginning of season one, that's one of our goals is for people to be weeping over the marring of Melkor, you know, and, and to see him, to see his, the result of, of, you know, when, when, when Melkor is lying, you know, chained at the end of the war of wrath, you know, in season 10 or whatever, um, the, the, the audience should be, cheering at the down at the overthrow of the tyrant but they should also be weeping for how what a what a horrible pitiful and pitiable end you know this great you know this potentially great guy has has come to um so so anyway those are my motivations for wanting to uh to resist any explicit acknowledgement to the viewers on screen that Melkor's motivations and and designs are are evil and manipulative throughout this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, what does he say? What do we have him say? What do we have him do? Hmm. I think he starts. Not with anything negative, right? He does, you know. Obviously, step one is not. Boy, the Valar are kind of a drag, aren't they? Right, bunch of killjoys, wouldn't you say? Right, that's not where he starts. Right, where he starts is by praising them. Right. right. Yeah. 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 He's just he all should, up. He, yeah. He should initially present himself as sympathetic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he he just he he's all he's all up one side and down the other side of them and their works, right? Um. You know, they they are the greatest. That haughtiness, Trish, that you were talking about, he just feeds that by praising it, by praising them, right? Right. Um, right. By 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 pumping up their egos. Yes, uh, as uh, as Marielle was saying, compliments, compliments, compliments. Exactly, exactly. Um, and they their own the Noldor's own tendency to think highly of themselves and their own acts make them suckers for the kind of flattery that he is shamelessly ready to, to give. Yeah. And it could be in contrast because it's, you know, Manway and the others may not be anywhere near that effusive. Yes. Yes. Or at all effusive. Yes. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Good. And Ruth Barrett, I agree with you. Ruth says he should be offering to teach them new things. 
too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, Because, Ruth adds, because they are the only ones who can perfect them. Wouldn't that be neat for him to suggest that, uh, you know, it's like, I, not to set himself up as like the oracle, or like, I, I, can, I, I can teach you many things because I know, I mean, that, that seems like the kind of arrogant thing that Melkor would do, right? But well, yeah, what if instead, as Ruth suggests, he's just like, I can teach you many things because I see that yours is the craft that can bring to completion right. these, these, uh, you know, my, right. my, 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 you know, my, my, my pottery beginnings in these particular things. Like you could take my work far beyond where I have taken it myself. Um, that Marielle's would be, that talking would be about contrast with Allie. I mean, Allie could be having a bit of a reaction to this. Not, I don't mean jealous. I mean, kind of like concerned or like, you know, suspicious or I don't know. Maybe I mean, we, we don't want to get too- Maybe we have him. He, he doesn't even have to know about it. Maybe he's oblivious. But but yeah, a contrasting scene, right? Have them have one of the 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 craftsmen go from working with Aule, right, where they're being taught. Um, but there's a definite like teacher learner relationship there between right. Aule, you know between Aule and 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 them, and then they go to 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 Melkor, and Melkor is also sort of a teacher, but it's much. I mean. Working with Aule could potentially, especially if you have a very high opinion of yourself, make you uncomfortable because it makes you feel dumb. Like you have to acknowledge that Aule is better than you are, right? Um, and that, right. you know, he has something to give and you have, have much to receive from him. Whereas, yeah, if Melkor adopts that, like, I know many things and my great skill and craft, perhaps I have some things that I could show you or su- some suggestions that I could make. But uh, but really, it just puts me in the position to be able to to appreciate the more, you know, and better than my colleagues, to be perfectly honest. How wonderful are your works? Right. You'd be a good Melkor. Yeah, it'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah, I I think that Um, that's that 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 seems like a sensible angle. He could also fan the flames on the uh, curiosity about about Middle Earth. Yes. Absolutely. Do that a lot too. Absolutely. I mean, so he's he, there. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's we like, would show him. We would like. show him picking up on that exactly. And all he has to do is just tell stories, right? Um, right. And he could be especially. You know, we were talking about. You know, Karita thinking about to, back to your observations about about the seasons and stuff. Um, that since that was his thing anyway, <laughs> right? He could really, really emphasize that, right? Um, interject you know, to sort of. Um, take their innocent curiosity about Middle Earth and their desire to see and to explore Middle Earth um, and emphasize the, like, this would be a bold and noble endeavor on your part, right? To, to, to confront the dangers, to face the hardships. Again, it's all about, instead of what his, what, morally speaking, from a, from a tempter standpoint, what he would want to be doing is to be constantly drawing their attention away from other things and onto themselves, right? That's the path for them. They they focus on the work of their hands, and that's not a bad thing. They have a desire to explore and to see Middle Earth, and that's not a bad thing. But the more they cease to be thinking about Middle Earth and how awesome it would be to see it, and the more they begin to think of it would be I would be an awesome Middle Earth explorer, right? Right. That's where the slippage comes. Same as like the difference between. This is a this is a an amazing jewel that I have made to 
I am an amazing jewel smith, right? Right. That's the right. shift that he and that his flattery should introduce. And I agree with you, Hakan. We have to be careful. Hakan is, you know, like his flattery can't be so egregious that it becomes obviously smarmy. Right. Um, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Um, but I think that that's, uh, um, and, and yes, so the, the, the introduction Hakan is, is, is reminding us of the importance of the introduction of the, the second children of Iluvatar. Here's what I'm wondering. Do we save that? Maybe we save that for the next episode. Remember episode 10 is going to be the one that's going to culminate in Feanor drawing his sword on Fingolfin, right? So we're going to get to the right. point of, of unrest. So again, thinking about where what we need to do by the time we get to that stamp. So we have to think about that in terms of Feanor and Fingolfin's relationship, of course. But, what's, but it also means we're going to have a solid half episode next time, uh, you know, in episode 10, in which we're still going to have the sort of the final stages of the escalation of the unrest of the Noldor. So we're going to want to save something for the front part of next episode. Uh Um, And I'm kind of, I'm thinking one obvious thing that we do is the making of weapons and the wearing of helms and, and, and armor and all that kind of stuff that we've talked about before. I think that, that that's a thing that happens Um, in the beginning part of episode 10. The thing about men I think we save that. The reason I think we save that is of all of the things, right? Of all of the things that they're talking about and that Melkor is discussing with them, all the things we've said so far, you know, their desire for their works, their desire to go back over to Middle Earth, all that stuff. None of that stuff, in none of that is there an issue of, is that going to get around to the Valar? And if it does, what are the Valar going to say, right? There's nothing weird about it, any of that. Right. Presumably the Valar know that the Noldor have these desires and someday or other they're going to sit down and have a a heart to heart conversation about this. Right. But but in any case, there's nothing to hide yet in any of that. If he starts telling them about men, now we get the question of why don't they go and talk to Manway about this? And if they do, what would he say? Right. Um, So I think if we save that for towards the end. Right. If we save that for. uh, if we save that for the next episode so that there's the, there's not the same sense of the passage of time, right? If like the stuff which actually is something like a secret and which would create tension between where, where, where tension is finally emerging between the Valar and the Noldor themselves, um, where they're being led now to actively negative thoughts towards the Valar. I think if we save that till right before everything comes to light, it'll be much easier uh, for people to yeah. kind of buy that. Yeah, and, and a little more dramatic. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. Good. And and uh, Marie had a point about the flattery, which I think is a good one. She says he should he should uh, appear sincere uh, and enthusiastic rather than fawning. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Um. Yes, yes. Um. Though I think it might be fine if some of the Noldor think him a, a little shallow or simple, right? Um, you mean Melkor? Melkor, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that would make sense, right? Because what we're told, right, is that that, uh, that, that, that um, um, Feanor, you know, in some sense... 
didn't like him, never trusted him, didn't sort of explicitly listen to him. He still, you know, got to Feanor and corrupted him. But like, but Feanor, it wasn't like Feanor was standing there nodding his head saying, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. He, right. he like, like him, didn't trust him, right? And so we, we should, we should definitely portray that. We should have, you know, some of the, some of the, no, we're told that some of the Noldor do, li- in fact, listen to him explicitly. Oh yeah. But oh yeah. We should have some of the, some of, especially people in the Feanor camp. Like ha- maybe maybe even display open contempt for him. Yes, all exactly. While taking apart what he says. Exactly. I mean, and and you know, I don't know if maybe if it, maybe I don't know if it gets quite so far as contempt, but exactly that. That is to say, it's uh, it's tempting to think about. Oh, okay, it's meta tempting. It's tempting to think about Melkor as tempter, um, setting himself up as like think about the 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 posture that Sauron took in Numenor, right? You know, he is like the one with arcane knowledge. He is the wise, the sorcerer, the, um, you know, the one who knows secret things. And he, his position is that of counselor to the king, right? Um, I don't think that's the posture that Melkor takes at all with the Noldor. I don't think he sets himself up as, I am the wise one who is yet benevolently oriented towards yourselves from whom you can learn much and, and that they become his like cult followers. Um, whereas again, the Numenorians literally become the cult followers of, of Sauron and Numenor. But again, I don't think that's how Melkor plays it. I think if anything, they, 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 again, I'm not sure I would go so far as contempt, but they kind of look down on him, right? I mean, they don't, they think he's, you know, it's like, well, he's, you know, skeptical. They're skeptical. Well, skeptical, not skeptical in the sense that they wonder, like, is that guy up to no good? But right. but he's harmless, right? I mean, he's kind of gormless. I mean, he's, he's oh. like the yes man who just loves us to death, right? And it's cute to have him around, right? Um, you know, it'll brighten up your day to have, like, you know... Uh, Mr. Like puppy dog eyes over there who just like thinks we're the best thing ever. I mean, if his whole, if his whole thing is to try to raise them up, it means he's going to lower himself in their minds. Right. Um, He's not going to try to elevate himself and get them to follow him. He's going to lower himself or appear to lower himself in order to puff them up because he wants them to, to not, not to follow him, but he wants them to kind of lead the way. Right. Um, and Brian, you're right. It does fit in with the the whole atmosphere of him being the conquered and repentant enemy, right? Like, uh, you know, he 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 could have this whole humility thing going on, right? Um. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Hakan, like like the humble uncle with no ambition of his own. Um, yes, yes. Um, that's uh, uh, that's and, and exactly. <laughs> Marielle says the reaction should be not like, no, I think, you know, like Numenorians might have been saying, right? Okay, like the things he's saying are shocking, but I think he's right. I think he has a point, right? Instead, what's the big deal with this guy? He's harmless, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, seriously, who could, who could, who could, and what could be there to worry about in like the guy who just loves us to death and loves hanging around and learning from us because we're, he can, he acknowledges that we're awesome, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yes, it is going to be a a delicate balancing act in script writing to, uh, have him be really humble without having him roll his eyes or give any indication that he hates what he's doing or that what he's doing is doing violence to his true character or, uh, or to make him not, you know, because it's going to be tempting to have moments where he's kind of 
looking over the heads of the other characters at the viewers, right? Like you and I know that this is an act, right? But, but that's exactly what I want to avoid. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So I think, I think it's, I think, I think, I think that's the direction we have him take. And by the way, the more I'm thinking about it, the more I'm thinking maybe he starts with armor and stuff at the end of today's episode. Um, because they don't have to be, yeah. In fact, okay, no. In fact, I totally think he should, and he should be. They should be making armor and stuff in the context of them thinking about Middle Earth and their desire to go to Middle Earth and endure the hardship of Middle Earth. So, thinking about the hardships of Middle Earth, they begin making themselves, you know, armor and like, you know, rugged gear and stuff. Uh, exactly, exactly. Marie was just having the the same the same idea. So it can still be in its inception morally innocent. In a sense, they can even be making weapons uh, and beginning to make weapons. Not wearing swords in Valinor yet, because again, that's that's clearly taking things to a different level. But they can start making weapons. Thinking about the because he could tell them about you know the dangers that the, that that they would face. But again, he's telling them he's still puffing them up in telling them about this, right? Um, uh, you know, because obviously they can handle it, but, um, but yeah, so, so we can start showing them having, you know, wearing armor and everything. So then the next step there is the step that's going to be taken in the next episode, which is when they begin to apply their increasingly warlike making skills to their current situation in Valinor. Um, so let's talk about the the response of specific Noldor Noldor to him. My first question: Which Noldor are his big dupes? He's got to have some partisans, right? He's got to have some people who just love him back to death, right? Whom do we show as being like the poster children for like the gullible Noldor? Because it should be somebody that we know, right? He can't just be he he can't just be uh, deceiving you know duping red shirts. He's got to be deceiving deceiving some named folks this is a this is kind of a this is kind of a tough question right because the most prominent like the 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 no, name noldo who come to noldor who come to to mind most readily are sort of the house of finway right well, i guess that's all the noldor in some sense <laughs> but like the immediate house fanor right Fingolf and those guys and they don't seem like good candidates well we know explicitly fanor doesn't listen to him and it would seem really odd. I don't know. Like, I don't think Finn Golfin would work either. Do you? I don't think so. I was thinking about that because that could be part of the strife between them, but I don't think Finn Golfin would, would he? I mean, I, oh, Arthur, maybe, perhaps. Actually, maybe, maybe, maybe we could take it that direction. Maybe, maybe sort of the gulf between them instead of being sort of just explicitly Feanor being a jerk. What if, what if, um, folks on Fingolfin or uh, Feanor being a jerk, what if folks on Fingolfin side kind of <clears throat> are, are being kind of, they're more inclined to listen to Melkor and, and being misled by him Yes, and like being stirred into thoughts of jealousy over the, you know, the, who's, who's the more prominent, um, uh, you know, line and stuff like that. Yeah, I, 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 the more I'm thinking about this suggestion, the more I'm liking the idea of Fingolfin being one of his major partisans in the early going. Um, And here's why. Okay, so Finarfin, 
I think should be, since Finarfin is going to choose not to leave Valinor, um, I think it would be best to show him as being fundamentally content, right? He doesn't, he, he, he's not one of the people who wants to leave Valinor to go back to Middle-earth. Right. You know, even like for innocent reasons, he's fine. Um, he, 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 he married it to, to Larry for crying out loud, right? He's, he's fine there. He's going to hang out there in Tyrion next, right? You know, next to Aqualande, right? But not too close, right? You, you don't want the in-laws right. over all the time, though I guess after the kinsling, that's less of an issue. But anyway, the point is he's content in Valinor, right? Um, Fingolfin chooses to go because see this, this, the, the, the number one thing I like about this idea is that it, um, it helps to, also remove another one of the things that I would consider another, well, I won't call it a major problem, but a significant potential stumbling block. Something that I often stumble on imaginatively when I'm reading The Silmarillion. Um, I have less of a problem with uh, with Manway's choice and, and feeling that Manway looks like an idiot. I've gotten that from students a lot, but but I, 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 I've never had that problem so much myself. The bigger problem that I have is that Fingolfin looks like an idiot when he goes along with Feanor. You know, he he says, like, half-brother in blood you are, full-brother you will be, and you know, where you go I will follow. That's a bad reason for leaving Valinor after Feanor, right? I mean, that you know, to be like, well, I said I would follow him, so even, it's like, if Feanor jumped off a cliff, would you follow him, Fingolfin? Like, come on now, like, you know, why does he go? Why exactly does he go? And I think there are other motivations that we can give him. But I like this idea. If we basically, if we have Fingolfin as one of the people who is quickest to um, sort of fall prey to the exploration of Middle-earth angle of Melkor's mm-hmm, right. speech, right? If what if Fingolfin's really into that? He go, part of the reason he goes he he goes with Feanor uh, to Middle Earth is because he really wants to go to Middle Earth, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, I think but, that um, I, yeah I, yeah that would, that would make sense if if we kind of change his motivation a little bit. Yeah. Um, and and also you know that could explain um, kind of the the maybe his like then his um his his sort of willingness to forgive Feanor and to 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 reconcile could be portrayed as kind of an overcorrection. Yes, exactly. For, for previous exactly. bad behavior. Exactly. Exactly. And as you say, it gives it, it it'd be nice to give him and Melkor an even deeper personal history leading up to their ultimate duel, right? Yeah, um, that's true. That would be cool. Um Okay, so I I like Fingolfin in that also, way. In that angle. I like the idea of having like a, sort of a, and then Finarfin is the foil to those two. You yes. have Fingolfin who listens, uh, Fanor who doesn't explicitly listen, and yet somehow, and yet in his in his reaction to Melkor, ends up being misled anyway. Yes, and then Finarfin, the con, the content guy who stays, his his thing will be just. His thing will be he'll make neither of those mistakes. He'll right. neither actively listen to Melkor, nor will he overreact to right. Melkor. He'll right. just be like, eh, you know, no, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, you're right. That sounds lovely, but 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 I'm fine. Right, yeah, no, exactly. Um <laughs> and to say that a different way, Fingolfin listens to Melkor. Uh Finarfin or Finarfin and Fanor both don't listen to Melkor, but Fanor doesn't listen for for bad reasons, and Finarfin doesn't uh-huh. listen for good reasons. 
Right. Um, because even the rejection of Melkor by Feanor is a bad sign, not a good sign, right? Um, it's like his particular pride is of a kind that he he doesn't he doesn't tolerate Melkor. Um, yeah. It should be a kind of a, it it should be. I know that so Maria is chiding me that you know Finarfin is wise, not milk toast. I agree, and we have to be careful not to make him look merely insipid because of all of the Noldor, Finarfin is the one who could look most insipid if we're not careful. I, I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, but thank you for oh, yeah. giving me the opportunity uh, yeah, to use the word it. insipid, which I really... Uh-oh. Yes, yes, that's exactly. I don't need you to tell me that, right? That that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I already know that Middle Earth. I, you know, I'm, I'm. He he already wants to go to Middle Earth, and he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't need this this like smarmy Vela telling him. Um, I would think that he would both envy and despise Melkor. He's the one who has contempt for Melkor. If anyone shows contempt for Melkor, it's Feanor. Um. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, big on the end. Yeah. Um, okay, so, um, oh, I have another, I, 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 I have another nominee for dupe of, uh, of, of Melkor. You ready? Great. Nerdanel. His wife. Oh. Ooh. That's interesting. Here's my thinking here. Nerdanel loves Melkor. And she laps up. She she like take she like eats what he's 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 giving out on toast, right? She just loves it. Right. And that's another reason that so Feanor Bristle it's another thing that makes Feanor Bristle not like a like a, a a love triangle kind of envy sort of thing, but he just like it it bothers him. Right. It bothers him that, his, you know, his he and his wife, who are like, you know, peers together. And um, uh, but, but, you know, and now she's all she keeps talking about this, this, you know, about about about, you know, Melkor and uh, and, you know, how he's exa- anyway. So he he's he, he's sick of it. But here's here's my other idea. Here's the reason why I like Nerdanel as an idea. Nerdanel is going to break with Feanor. Um, what I'm what I would be interested to say is <clears throat> initially. Right. She's all about what Melkor says, and he's resistant to it. That sets up a really great conversation between them when they do split later on. Um, and when he says he can throw at her, 
I have rejected Melkor and his works from the beginning, right? I wasn't a sucker like you were, right? And she would say, I have seen the error of my, you know, I now realize that we were being manipulated and I am now working against the lies of Melkor, unlike you, you idiot, who are doing exactly. It's like basically that, that thing that the narrator says about how although Feanor gave no heed to the words of Melkor, you know, from the beginning, yet throughout all of the things he was saying, we see that she says that. She's Nerdino would be, then be in a position to be to actually throw that in his face, um, and that's what I like about it. That's what I like about it. So, so that it, because I think it would set up the breach between them at the end in a really, really interesting way. Um, have her be the the one who recognizes, like, okay, I did get totally taken in, um, like so many of the other Noldor with his words and and what he said, and and. Um, and so she repents it, and she repents it by staying, um, and by opposing Feanor and exposing the fact that Feanor is in fact just being Melkorian in his in his uh, uh, in his in his going in his going on. So yeah, well, see, that's the thing, Marie. I, I was using the word dupe. Uh, uh, Marie doesn't want Nerdanel to be a dupe, and I agree with you. I don't want her to look bad. I don't, I don't want her to look dumb. But I think dupe is really the wrong word here um, because he's not yet deceiving anybody about anything. Right. He's not he's not he, he's he's running a con, but he's not tricking people yet. All yeah, he's, I mean, his, he needs to be it needs to make sense. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Melkor is not going to do. How am I saying this? The people that he deceives are not going to are not stupid people. No. They are, and so he, what he's doing needs to make sense. It's like you kind of said, the viewer is going to be, you know, we're going to, like, it'll make sense to us. Why yes. Nerd now would. Yes. You know what I mean? It, uh, yeah. So I don't think, I don't think, I think we can not have people look like dupes. Yeah, because again, to be a dupe means that someone has tricked you into believing, like, an improbable thing which you feel stupid in believing later on, right? If you think about it, there is no thing of that kind that Melkor does with the Noldor, right? He he manipulates them, he puffs them up, he leads them into pride, but it's not like he deceives them. He doesn't deceive. What what does he deceive them about, right? Um, I mean, he he leads them to the place where they begin to think that the Valar are cooping them up and and the Valar are working against them, um, but he. Is not again. He's. It's not. It's not a deception, in that way. Um, so, yeah, Hakan says, "Well, he'll lie about Fingolfin usurping Feanor's position." No, he won't. Fingolfin is going to usurp Feanor's position, right? Uh, that's not a. That's not a lie. That's a. That's a Macbeth's prophecy kind of situation, right? Um, uh, and by Macbeth's prophecy, I'm referring to the prophecy of Macbeth becoming king, right? Um, it's exactly like that. Uh, Macbeth feels, since it's been prophesied that he's going to become king, that, you know, uh, he's like in some way justified in killing Duncan in order to make himself king, because that's what was prophesied was going to happen, right? But he brings about the fulfillment of the prophecy by his choice, to murder Duncan, and that's how he becomes king. Similarly, Feanor 
is going to bring about the usurpation by Fagolfin is going to be is going to usurp his brother's position. Um, but he's going to usurp. He, that's only going to happen through Feanor's own choices. First, in the strife with Fingolfin and Valinor, and second, in the abandonment uh, with the burning of the ships, right? Which is ultimately what's going to lead Mithros to turn around and make Fingolfin the leader of the family, right? To put him in that position. So, so yeah, exactly. So it's it's um, it's even that's not a lie. Even that's not a lie, and I, I and I would want to maintain. In fact, this is this is I th- this to to me would be the really fun challenge for script writers. I would like. I, I think it would be ideal if Melkor never says an untrue thing at any point. Like he never lies throughout this entire thing. Um, there is not a single untruth he ever tells them. Um, he encourages them and allows them to f- draw, draw false conclusions. He, he, he's constantly inviting them to think uh, more and more highly of themselves and to, to, to call the worth first and the motivations second of others more and more into question. Um, but he never lies to them. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think that's, I think that would be, that would be really, that, that would be really cool. Um, so, so yeah, so Nerdinel the Wise, yeah, she's, I, I like it. That's my argument for, for, for Nerdinel, but it's especially the setup, the second setup. And, um, Marielle was suggesting maybe she works with him. Maybe Nerdinel works with, uh, Melkor. Maybe she does some, like a, some kind of work project with, you know, he helps her in some kind of creation. That I think would be an interesting segue to Melkor. Remember Melkor's later going to claim that the Silmarils were, he's going to lay claim to the Silmarils and say that they were, they were his doing, right? And that he had a hand in them. I would like to, I think we need to, and this is, as you will detect, a cunning segue into the making of the Silmarils, but we need to, we need to establish some kind of connection there. If there were some kind of connection with, between Melkor and Feanor with the Silmarils, such that what he says later on could be more of a twisted thing than a complete, I'm making this up out of whole cloth thing. Right. Um, it's it still is Marie. Yes, it still is going to be a lie later on. I, I'm not saying that I want him to be making the Silmarils. Even if he just knows about it, right? Even if he, even if he just knows, Marie is making the parallel to uh, to Gollum claiming the ring as his birthday present. But you see, Marie, even that's not a lie, right? Um, and Gandalf even gives the train of reasoning that led to it, right? It was his birthday. It had obviously shown up just so as to be a present. Deagle ought to have given it to him. It was his birthday present, right? That's the... It's not... It's not... That's what I mean when I say it's not made up out of whole cloth. It's exactly that kind of link that I would really like, right? Um, maybe... Maybe Nerdinel tells him. Maybe Nerdinel tells Melkor what Feanor's working on, Right? And Melkor is really interested in the project and gives advice or just tells Nerdinel that he wants to give advice, right? 
to fa- to Fanor and and or maybe she and and maybe she tries to share with him what Melkor shared with her about suggestions and he, and 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 Fanor won't listen, right? He won't have it and maybe that's the moment where we see where he he reveals his hostility to Melkor for the first time explicitly. Um and he wants nothing to do and he tells her you know, like knock it off. And so that could actually lead to Melkor could actually even on some level almost believe like, well, I gave him advice on the making of the Silmarils. Right. Um, uh, and so he could in that kind of Smeagol like way, talk himself into saying like, I like gave him advice about how, how to make the Silmarils. He would never have made the Silmarils if it hadn't been for my advice. The Silmarils are all owing to me. Right. Therefore I, so you see that, that, that kind of the way that that kind of chain of reasoning could, could kind of come around. Um, but Feanor knows, even if Melkor doesn't actually know, that he never even listened to it. He never even heard the advice. Not only did it not influence him, he never even heard it. Because he won't let Nerdenel even tell him. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so what about the making of the Silmarils? Uh, two, two things. Two, two bigger Silmarils issues. One is the question, Karita, that you raised before we started our session today. Um, why is this book called The Silmarillion anyway? Um, you know, what are we to understand? I mean, it's the story of the Silmarils. Why? I, that's an excellent question. Um, the main thing I would say about that is that uh, it is not so from the beginning. Uh, you'll remember, of course, not only the original collection is called the Book of Lost Tales. It's not the Book of Lost Tales about the Silmarils. And in fact, if we read the Book of Lost Tales, one of the things that will really jump out at you is that the Silmarils are extremely minor characters. They're not actually all that big a deal um, in in the Book of Lost Tales at all. In fact, they kind of drop out and are almost forgotten about. <clears throat> the curse of meme is far more recurring dominant and important an idea than the Silmarils in the Book of Lost Tales. The curse that Meme lays upon the treasure of Glaurung um, has way more wide-reaching effects than the Silmarils in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, so, um, I... Uh, <laughs> Maria is pointing out that we better make sure that all seven of the sons of Fanor get born before Nerd and Helen Fanor have this little little squabble. <laughs> fair point. Fair point. Um, well, there could oh, be makeup, fair point, Marie. You know, makeup relations. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but possibly, possibly, but I, I don't think so. I think I, I think we're good. Besides which, we we need them all to be. Uh, to be recognizable by this time, um, if they're going to jump forward and swear the oath with Feanor, we don't want to. We 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 don't want to have toddlers jumping forth and swearing the oath of Feanor. So, um, <laughs> though, how cute would that be, right? Well, I mean, that would be so cute, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. You know, have the twins be, uh, you know, be lisping along, you know, looking up at their big brothers. Yeah, no, that actually is horrifying. It is disturbing, Marie. It's deeply disturbing. <laughs> so, yeah, no, clearly, clearly they all need to be consenting adults at the time of the oath. Um, uh, <laughs> but anyway, okay. All right. All right. Okay. So, so Marillion. So, okay. Um uh, so in the Book of Lost Tales, Book of Lost Tales is not the Silmarillion. When he comes back to it and starts, um, uh, 
that is, so he he doesn't quite doesn't finish the book of lost tales leaves it behind starts writing epic poetry right does the iterative uh, lay of the children of Hurin does the way of Lathian writes the Hobbit and then he's like eh. so then he comes back to it right he starts he he gets kicked off by that sketch of the mythology that he did to give background information for the dude who wanted to read the iterative lay of the children of Hurin as far as it had gotten. And so he starts writing this sketch of the background mythology so that the person is equipped to understand what the heck is going on in the way of the children of Hurin. And writing that sketch in 1930 is what leads to, uh, is what leads to the 1930 Quinta, um, uh, which is the beginning of like the modern Silmarillion tradition, like the form, the actual like narrative form that the published Silmarillion, uh, still eventually has. But, um, but it's, uh, it's, it's, Still not called the Quintus Silmarillion at that point. He calls it the Quinta or the Quinta Noldorinwa. Um, so you can see that it's it's still it's still about the it's still about the Noldor, right? Um, uh, it's not about the Silmarils yet. The name Quintus Silmarillion doesn't come in until the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion. So he he does the Quinta Noldorinwa uh, in 1930, and he 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 does some other. St- he starts writing the Annals, the Annals of Valinor and Beleriand. Um, and then he comes, and then he, he, he's, he's, he's finished the Hobbit and the the Hobbit, the Hobbit and the Hobbit is coming out for publication. Um, and then he comes back and he does a new version of it. And this is when he's preparing it for publication. And that's when he titles it the Quintus Silmarillion. Um, the, the myth of the Silmarils, the idea of the Silmarils clearly grew on him over time over like that 20 year period between, you know, the mid to late 19 teens and the late 1930s. Um, and so it's, that's the point where we can see that it has really begun to take over. And my suspicion, if I had to guess, and it's merely a guess as to what changed to make him decide to put the Silmarils in the title of the thing between 1930 and the, you know, the 1930, 30 version and the 1937 version, I would say the thing that changed as usual with Tolkien, where these ideas come from is out of the story as it's being written, right? I think that just like he had no idea who Strider was and what was up with him when he met him, when they, when the hobbits met him in the inn at Bree, right? And out of this meeting with this random stranger who he doesn't know, have any idea who he is or what he's doing comes the entire story of, of the return of the King. Um, so too, I think, no, not quite as dramatically as that. Um, but the story of the Silmarils really grows and fleshes out during the course of the writing of the Quentin Olderinwa, including, in particular, I would emphasize, all that business about the end, that like, Mithros and Maglor arguing and going and reclaiming the Silmarils and then, you know, like throwing them away and going crazy and everything. That happens in the Quentin Olderinwa. Um, though boy was he waffling back and forth about who does who gets which bits of dialogue and who does what. Um, like first it's it's Mithros, then it's Maglor, then it's Mithros, then it's Maglor. Um, but anyway, that so that that scene that by the end of the Quentin Olderinwa, the story of the elder days of Middle Earth is culminating is now clearly culminating in the question of the final destiny of the three Silmarils. That was not true before. Um, even the Silmaril, like Elwing and Eärendil Silmaril in the original, in the Book of Lost Tales seems to get lost. Like it, 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 Elwing throws herself into the sea, 
drowns and the Silmaril is lost. The end of the Silmaril story in the Book of Lost Tales version. Um, so we get this whole thing of like one Silmaril in the earth, one Silmaril in the sea, and one Silmaril in the airs, uh, you know, among the stars. That comes out at the end. Of, at the end of the, so I think having gotten there by the end of the Quentin Olderinwa, he was like, ah, right. So when he goes back to rewrite it, he calls it the Silmarillion from the beginning and places the Silmarils at the at the central role. So I can't explain it. Um, I can't say that I think the Silmarils are the, like, I, I, it doesn't seem to me to be a just reading to constantly have this, like, as if the Silmarils really are the essential essence of the entire mythology or the, you know, just because the book is titled that doesn't necessarily mean that like they really are like the be all and end all of the story. Um, but they do. That's the reason they have that really central place because of their ultimate destinies and, and, and the, the way in which they kind of represent the, the blessing of Valinor, right? The light of the trees and the blessed realm, the time of the noontide. It's the only direct, not memory. It's the only direct thing, which is more than a memory of the noontide of Valinor is the light of the trees that's contained within the Silmarils. Um, and the way that they get sort of, set into or kind of imbued within the, 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 you know, all of, of, of the earth, right? Earth, sea, and sky, um, becomes then this sort of dominant idea. Um, but, uh, anyway, okay. So let me, so that's one issue. Second issue. Um, there was a debate or a discussion on the discussion board about, how are the Silmarils made by magic or science? And I wanted to talk about the magic and science thing. Um, the answer obviously is both, right? Um, on the one hand, it's technology, it's craft. That's what the Noldor do. And we know from Galadriel that they don't think of what they do as magic. Um, and you'll notice that, uh, um, People often emphasize <clears throat> that Galadriel in her fame, in that famous exchange with Sam, um, does not think of what she does and what the elves do as magic, <clears throat> though she knows that they, the halflings, would call it magic. What is slightly less often remembered <clears throat> is the fact that she does explicitly associate the word magic with the deceits of the enemy. Right? She, the reason she objects to having what elves do called magic well, sort of gently objects, but objects anyway, is that it seems to lump in what she does, you know, what she and the other elves do with the deceits of the enemy. Um, which seems almost as much as to say, what Sauron does is magic. What we do isn't magic, right? So in what sense, therefore, are the deceits of the enemy magic? Like, how does that, does that help us? to a, a sort of refine a definition of like of an elvish definition or a noldor a Noldoran definition of magic uh you know from from that um i think it can in a couple different ways think also think of another distinction which at first might seem apparently unrelated to the goadriel and sauron question Think of the distinction that that Tolkien makes in on fairy stories um, between the kind of magic that elves do, between the enchantment of the subcreation of elves, 
and the magic of the laborious scientific magician, right? People like Dr. Faustus. Um, he characterizes the one kind of magic, the bad kind of magic, as the attempt to dominate or control the primary world through power, right? Um, and is in this way, in Tolkien's mind, parallel to science, right? Um, because that's what man has been doing for a long time through technology, right? That is how scientific learning, because science in the end means knowledge. You don't really do things with science, right? You can apply science. You, you have knowledge, right? And you apply it to particular ends. Um, the application of science has been to the, you know, the domination of nature and the, 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 the making stuff happen in the primary world. In that way, magic, you know, the magic of people like, uh, like, like Dr. Faustus is, um, is, is like it, right? Is parallel to, um, what science does. And of course, as C.S. Lewis has pointed out, points out on several occasions, um, the two come from the same place. Like it was the same generation um, who was fascinated in witchcraft and magic and also uh, gave birth to the scientific method. Um, and, you know, as uh, as I love the metaphor that C.S. Lewis uses, I'm, I forget exactly where, but he says the two magic and science were born twins. Right. One of them was sickly and died and one of them was strong and thrived, but they came from the same place. Um, and uh, Tolkien clearly seems to think in, in very similar kinds of ways. So, okay. Um, so on the one hand, the deceits of the enemy are, are the domination, uh, the domination of others, right? The use of power, uh, to control things and to dominate people. Um, and that's not what the elves do. Not exactly what the elves do. Right. Uh, not exactly the same. Um, but, um, Though Chris Stevens was just pointing out that isn't that kind of like don't the three rings of power kind of do that a little bit? Yes, Chris, but they do it much more nicely, right? It's it's much more friendly than. But yes, that's exactly kind of the 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 problem potentially. Um, yeah, um, just because Celebrimbor alone made the three and they were not tainted by Sauron doesn't necessarily mean that the motivation that led Celebrimbor to make them in the first place was a good idea, right? Um, yes, yes. Um, and I look forward to the day when we're telling the story of Celebrimbor and we can show how flawed were, are the three elvish rings. But anyway, that's a story for uh, a few decades from now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have a question. <laughs> yeah. Is Dave still with us? I think he is. I think he had just muted himself to prevent background noise. Oh, okay. I was worried because he's been. Yes, I'm still on. So yeah, he's been, been patiently so listening. And, patiently uh, listening. Yeah. And blocking okay. background noise. Right. So that's where. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Sorry. I, I've been in. I've, <laughs> I've I've been in lecture mode here. Coming back to oh, Feanor. Oh, no, 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 it's fine. It takes Come... the pressure off Dave and I. For sure. <laughs> Coming back to Feanor, I don't think it's. I don't think it's really. A, a useful distinction at the end of the day, you know, um, he is, what he's doing is craft, but all the things that are called, you know, like a, the swords, which hobbits would call magic swords 
were made by knowledge and by lore and by craft by the by the the elves so you know by the elves by the Noldor who made them so you know I, I don't think that that's really a distinction that we can so like do we see him doing what's going to look like modern science right like do we see him mixing chemicals in beakers and whatnot i no i don't think so um but uh here's one of the challenges that i think one of the problems that i see um to a modern audience that question of is it magic or is it science tolkien held that question not exactly in suspense but he sort of challenged the meaningfulness of that question to a modern viewer those two are mutually exclusive um I was talking about this a little bit uh, on Saturday in the discussion of Stranger Things and that one of the things I was interested in the Netflix series Stranger Things is the way that it never really resolves those questions in ways that I kind of kept expecting it to. I kept it when it when to a modern audience, when something weird, strange and apparently magical happens, there's always immediately like. Everyone has like a genre crisis as soon as both the both the viewers and the characters within the story immediately have a genre crisis. They're all asking the same question. Wait, wait, wait a second. What kind of a story are we in? Is this a fantasy? Is magic real here? Or is magic not real? And is there really a perfectly rational explanation of this, how this came about by explicable, even if somewhat stretched, like Star Trekian science explanations, right? Um, because, I mean, no, modern viewers have been trained, I would say, by modern culture to view those two things as exclusive, right? Either it has a natural explanation or it's magic. And... So I think that's where I think we have to be careful with the making of the Silmarils. If we show him doing some kind of like alchemical process, right? Uh, if, or some, if, we, if, we, if we show him doing what looks like chemistry, for instance, the message I think that would send to our viewers would be, so see, they're not really magical. It's actually chemistry instead I can't think that if we if we make it look too much like a lab, like a like a like a modern lab, it's going to end up. Yeah, uh, Brian Federini has just uttered the fatal word midichlorians. Exactly, Brian. Exactly, and that's why people hated the midichlorians so much when 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 the issue of the midichlorian count came out at, in 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 uh, uh, in in the Phantom Menace. Everyone hated it, and exactly what oh, they yeah. hated about it was, and there you just removed, like, the whole magic and mystique of Star Wars, right? Thank you for killing the Force for us, and because what yeah. it did was it makes it a genre shift, right? No longer yeah. is that fantasy. Now, like, there's a perfectly natural explanation for it, and the Force is totally explicable. Not about, really, because what, what the heck are midichlorians, but whatever. Sorry, go ahead. What about a spiritual aspect? I, this is getting a little woo-woo, and I'm not sure if this works or not, but how about if it's somehow we get the sense that they've been blessed by Iluvatar? I'm I'm reaching here, I grant you. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, to, like, going back to the Force, I mean, that's, to me, the Force, you know, was always a spiritual thing. It was right. a spiritual thing. Right. That, you know, that's how it's presented. I wonder if maybe the Silmarils, as opposed to sort of, you know, magic, quote-unquote, there's some kind of blessedness about them. Uh, but it would have to come from a Louvatar, not from 
Yes. Well, I mean, that element, I mean, uh, 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 hallowed is a word Uh that's used, right? Holy jewels is a thing that they're called, right? So, I mean, that, that's not a stretch. Um, yeah, as Brian was just saying, they are explicitly hallowed. Yes, they are explicitly hallowed. Um, uh, well, hallowed by Varda. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which would actually, if they're hallowed by Varda, that makes them even more attractive to Melkor, huh? <laughs> I totally forgot about that. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll keep these to remember you by, honey. Right. Uh, you know. That's right. We'll, we'll always have, have the, the timeless halls, you know. <laughs> Boy, how bent is that? We'll we'll always have the void, right? Uh, well, but anyway. especially, I mean, especially with the Galadriel component to it, too. You know, with the hairs and stuff, it kind of gets all yeah. in there. But... Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, yeah, yeah, as well as ways. Setting up way in advance the whole calling to Galadriel, calling to Elbereth parallel, right? That 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 we're going to oh, get goodness. in the Lord yeah. of the Rings. Um, okay. Um, yeah. Well, so I mean, all of this is related to the basic question: Do we show the Silmarils being made? Now we could just punt that. We could just not do it. We could just have him reveal the Silmarils and say, this is my greatest masterpiece and never show them in process. Right. We don't need to have like a like a, you know, a a a, a like MacGyver Feanor making the Silmarils montage. Right. To show like all the ingredients that he used, but, you know, to 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 make the to, to make up the thing. Um, uh, Seems like that could be really. um Seems like that could be uh, uh, anti, or I don't know that that could be really corny doing like the Silmarillion construction montage. Right, it could. It uh, really could. It seems like it. It seems like maybe a, a better thing to do would be very subtle references throughout the episode, or even even in prior episodes of just like, where's Feanor? What's he doing? He's been spending a lot of time on his own lately. Yeah, I heard he was over at Blobbity Blog picking up some, you know, I don't know, he was out in the mountains mining some materials or something. Like subtle references of that 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 make it clear to the audience that he's doing something on his own and he's not he's this is like, you know, he he's been he's been he's been um, you know, sort of uh, like behaving strangely, spending more time alone, not following his usual pattern of behavior, etc. So the so something's up. Yeah, and then we do a reveal. This is what's up, and then he shows up all hollow-eyed and with you know, like a, sort of like the light of obsessiveness in his eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 okay. All right. Two things. Thing number one, I'm loving the idea of of retaining the veil of mystery over the making of the Silmarils. Um, having him just because uh, there are several things I like about it. One. Feanor's solitude, Feanor alone, right? Even Nerdanel doesn't know exactly what he's doing or how he does it, right? Um, nobody knows what the Silmarils are made of or how they were made. So we don't want to show him getting together the raw materials and pounding on things or carving things or whatever. Um, so, and, and and that idea of like the reveal, he, he vanishes. And d- 
I could I, I think it could be a really powerful scene when Thanor emerges like out of the you know, like the darkness of his secret workshop that he has made because he's paranoid and and secretive. And he and and the the Silmarils just get revealed. Um and we the audience are led to gasp in wonder as everybody else always gasps in wonder when they see when they see the Silmarils. Um uh, the second thing, though, is so several people are objecting and saying, and if you guys, uh, Brian is threatening us with the fact that they came up with a good reason why they have to show it. Please share it with us. But uh, let me share a couple other things that people are saying. Timothy Fisher points out very sensibly, you do have to show or at least suggest how the light of the trees is crystallized in the Silmarils. Absolutely. I mean, we we can't have them be the, the, the fact that it's the light of the trees and that, you know, what the Silmarils are is like the light of the trees made permanent and imperishable. That needs to be a thing, obviously. Um, but that doesn't well, we can, that doesn't mean we, we have can, to show them being there's made. There's ways to do that without some kind of corny. Yes. That can either be he can either say that afterwards or we could have him talking about it in advance. We could it could be part of the conversation with him and Nerdanel at the you know beforehand, the one where she offers to like share share with him some of Melkor's ideas. And he says no, in which he tells her the concept, right, what he's trying to do, like the the, the yeah. thing that he's working on. Or maybe yeah. not. Maybe just explain, you know, maybe afterwards when everyone is like, whoa, what the heck is that? He's like, dude, it's totally the light of the trees. Isn't that awesome? Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we could do it that could way. Even imagine doing, you could do something even more subtle where you, where you just like you plant the fact that he seems really obsessed with the light of the trees. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We can, we can, we can do that. Um, we can, we can, we can set that up in advance with him. With him talking about the light of the trees. We don't even have to say, like, my project is to preserve the light. All we need is an earlier conversation where he's going on about the light of the trees. Um, yeah. And, like, you know, uh, uh, where we can see the desire to, to, uh, uh, to. I mean, I can, I can see it's something kind of tacky where the trees do have fruit, right? Where he picks a, a shining fruit from each tree and, like, surreptitiously sticks them in his pocket. Right, right. Or, like, <laughs> He, he like comes in with a little flask that he dips into the vats of light. Right? Exactly. And, I was, and, I was, thinking, and, I was thinking like, you know, or, or then, like, like some, yeah. you know, he's the pipe into the bark and siphons like yeah, that. Siphons it. Right, right. He taps the vat of light, right? And sneaking, looking Probably over like his shoulder. Syrup, and, you know, yeah, like exactly. Right. I just, I think we should, I think we, I think we should stay clear of trying to provide any kind of explanation of how. Yeah. It just, Nothing we do will be satisfying. It's going to sound dumb. Yeah, I do think the exposition route in this in this case probably works the best. I was trying to think if we show any kind of like, you know, how you show kind of like from the outside, like a workroom from the outside with noises and lightning and, you <laughs> right. know, right. <laughs> all this right. kind of stuff. I don't know if we would do that even. Right. But I like the, the fact that we're showing that capture the light of trees through, through right. basically right. – conversation yeah yeah i agree now timothy fisher is insisting it has to cost him something to make them and i agree and this was another thing that was being said on the discussion board um but we Chop don't have his finger off but we don't have to show what it was it have yeah. him, by all means let's have him emerge from his workshop with the silmarils have him emerge changed have him changed. even spent, visually spent. changed yeah, Gaunt. I mean, he can look different. But even if he doesn't look yeah. different, let him act different. Let there be a change in his personality that begins at that time. Show that he's yeah. he's been altered, 
you know, he, he gave something up. Um, and, and, you know, but we don't have to say what it was. I would say, Trish, uh, it, it, to, to respond to something you were just saying a minute ago, to me, it's not even about showing it versus exposition. To me, it's just about like mystery. Like have, let's, let's let, let us be as unspecific as we possibly can about the Silmarils. We're going to need to show them, right? The final products. But as far as what they're made of, how they were made, the process, what it is he gave them up. All we need to know is they are awesome. They are the light of the trees preserved for all eternity with an imperishable crystal. That's the phrase that's used in the, in the, in the book. Um, we need to know that his heart is set in them, that he has bound himself to them, or at least that's how he thinks at the very least is how he thinks of it. Um, I, 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 and I think we can establish oh, yeah. all and those things without showing. It has to be made clear. He may make it clear that he can never do anything like this again. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, and I'm totally with Marielle, you know, shots of gray in the hair. I'm all for gray. That's sure. You know, or, sure. Or this shock of, I mean, if you want to, if you want to, if you want like a, something to make it obvious that this cost him something and that it, that it had some kind of, you know, he paid a penalty. I mean, how about aging and elf? I mean, they don't age. Yeah. So if he comes out and he's got gray hair and some like, I don't know, some like crow's feet around his eyes or whatever, um, like that's going to seem pretty significant. Yeah. Yeah. I would think it would. And I, I, the the connection that you guys are wanting to make between the making of the Silmarils and his, his grief for his mother, um, I'm interested in that idea. I'm not a hundred percent sold, but I kind of like it. But again, I don't think we need to show it. In fact, I think it's going to be lessened by showing. I think that we can, ha- he can, he can talk about it afterwards. You know, I mean, we can have, he, he can explain, we can have him talk to Nerdinel. It can be one of their last friendly conversations, you know, afterwards where he, he talks about it. It's okay. Um, and and we can then be led to Rebecca. That's a wonderful point. The the echoes back to his mother giving of herself to make Feanor. We have him giving of himself to make the Silmarils. Um, you know the fire that was set, her fire that was set into his spirit. Um, you know is that then becomes both parallel. You know now he has taken much of his fire and set it into the and set it into the Silmarils themselves. Um, you know with the light of the trees. I, but but yeah, I I I think I I I, I no. Brian, what I'm talking about is is showing the effect on him. Um, they don't have to have a conversation about it. I, I, I'm fine with them not having a conversation about it. I'm fine with letting the, the audience just speculate about it. If you guys want to make an explicit connection back to um, back to the his grief for his mom, then it could come up. Um, it could come up even like elliptically. They don't have to spell it out, um, but it could, you know, it Nerdinel could say something which suggests the connection between the Silmarils and his grief. She could make a, a reference to tears or something. I don't know. Um, but, but that's only, pre- uh, but I start that sentence with, if you want to make that connection explicit, I don't want to make that connection explicit. I'm not, I'm not resisting it. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm saying I don't need to make it. I, I kind of want to make as little explicit about the Silmarils as possible. Um, yeah, we need to leave something for the academic papers, you know, with for all, for crying out loud. So. Absolutely, <laughs> let's not put all these all these poor Can't you know really literary folks out of a job. Um, uh, but and I think honestly, this is that that's actually a really good illustration. I think of how the whole showing versus telling thing I think often gets uh, overplayed. Um, it's it's uh, like, for instance, something that is mentioned in words 
but mentioned in words very gently and elliptically, which is sort of suggested, but not, um, it, it can be much more powerful than something merely being shown. Um, and something, I, I, I just, I, I think that, um, I, so I sometimes start to feel about the whole show versus tell truism about, you know, uh, about film and creative writing. I sometimes start to feel the same way that I that I feel about the stupid rules that people like as soon as it as soon as that becomes calcified into a rule, it starts to lead you astray. Um, so I, 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 I'm a good guideline. That's yeah. why I object to that. Well, but the anyway. other thing for me is it, it, to me, it's like adding more stuff. We've already got him being obsessed with the trees. Yes. Um, to me, that's. That and his love of craft and his desire to outdo Melkor and all this other stuff, we've already got all that. Yes. So I'm not sure that adding in something back to his mom, which basically we we didn't deal with it in, in the sense of completing it, but we we brought it up yes. you know, a few, a few yes. uh, episodes ago. I just I don't think that's needed. It's we've a, already got plenty of... It's exactly the kind of thing that can be seen to be operative. Like, if you're sitting there and thinking, uh, Trish, as you say, like an academic would, if you're sitting and thinking through right, and really exactly. asking yourself the questions like, what's up with Feanor? What's driving him? You can go back to his mom, right? But that doesn't right. mean we have to keep bringing it up and going there explicitly in the story. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it's there. It's going to be there. Whether we say anything about it ever again, it's going to be there, right? And it's okay for us. It's good for us to be thinking about it, but that doesn't mean it has to be made explicit, I think. Um, so, anyway, anyway. Uh, okay. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, anyway, okay. So, what do the Silmarils look like? Now, how big are they? They can't be chunky and enormous because they've got to fit onto Melkor's crown later on without making Melkor and his crown look stupid, right? So they have to be <laughs> small enough to to be set into Melkor's crown and still look awesome. Um, shouldn't it also be... But it shouldn't it kind of, I mean... And he wears them on his brow. Feanor wears them on his brow, too. And, yeah. and Luthien wears, it as a, wears one as a necklace later, right? Exactly, exactly. But so it's good. Also the, sort of thing that you, you know, kind of fit in the palm of your hand, but not so small that it doesn't right? Cause, right. Because we need to have that image of them pulling Baron's hand out of... Uh, yes. Oh, right, that's right. right. It's yeah, good, good, yes. That's, that's, a, that's a really good baseline. Right. Yeah, so, okay, so, so suggestions. Pool balls? Grapefruit? <laughs> golf ball? Clementine? Like, what are we thinking of for size? Um... I, I, I agree. Clementine golf ball. I'm thinking Clementine golf, golf ball. Golf ball. Really? Well, because well, because he wears all three on his brow, right? Fanor does. What about? Can you imagine ball size, full size Silmarils on his brow? <laughs> what about iPhone six? Probably too big. <laughs> iPhone six is too big. <laughs> I think iPhone six is probably a little too big. <laughs> Yes, I think that is a little too big. Um, iPhone four, maybe, but no, still. Yeah, no, I, I do agree. It has to. Baron's hand should be able to close around it. I agree with that. Right, right. So not okay. pools, completely. So, right. so, 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 golf ball seems to be the the upward edge of where golf it could ball be. Slash Clementine. Yeah. Clementine ball is too big. Clementine would think Both how think how dumb it would look like to wear a tiara with three Clementines set in it. I mean. <laughs> 
that would well, that, that would okay, be ridiculous. But it doesn't have to be. The, it can be roughly that size, but not that cherry shape. tomatoes. Right. And, How about and, cherry tomatoes? And is it going to be spherical? I was thinking of them being flat. We haven't flat. gotten to shape yeah. yet. We haven't gotten to shape yet. Let's stick with size for a second. I'm um, thinking. I'm thinking. Cherry tomatoes, large cherry tomatoes. Cherry tomato or grape is more like what I'm thinking, frankly. Yeah. Or I was. I'm actually looking at grape tomatoes right at the moment. Gra- grape tomatoes. Okay. Compromise. Compromise. <laughs> <laughs> really, grape? They probably should be bigger big than grapes. grapes. Really big grapes, not little grapes. Big grapes. You know, once you start actually thinking about this in this terms, like the. It's, it kind of it starts to seem absurd that this is the sort of thing that you would that they would see in the sky, on the. Uh, well, it's got to be. It's got to be awful uh, bright, right? It's well, got to be awful bright. Gotta, okay, olives. How come I can go with olives? I'm having frequently these days is I'm is I'm not exactly cursing, but I'm kind of shaking my fist a little bit at Dr. Tolkien <laughs> because he just he just elides over all this stuff. He doesn't yep. think about no the sizes of the Silmarils. It's like, yeah, he wears it on his brow. I'm this like, is exactly, you yeah. see this again and again. <laughs> when you, when, maybe he did think you, about Dr. it. Maybe, yeah. maybe he did think about it and he concluded what I think we're heading toward, which is, this is hopeless. Better not to <laughs> better not to say anything about it. You realize I'm writing a book. I don't actually have to get into this. Right. But, he, was, he was big into can kicking, wasn't he? He started the, 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 well, the tradition he makes the he makes their significance mythic more mythic by not describing them any more than any more than he does and this is this is um uh this is this is definitely it's like i mean you know trish we've seen this many times before it's like the problems that turbine always has when they want to visualize things from the game and they're trying to stick to exactly how tolkien describe it and when they do it's yeah, totally unimpressive. Yeah. The classic example being the Stone of Eric, which has yes. huge mythic significance and is awesome and awe-inspiring to think about. But if you actually are walking through the woods and come upon that rock looking exactly it's as Tolkien... It's the size of a bowling ball, right? It's this, well, it's a bigger <laughs> than a bowling ball, but it's about the size, as, as Chris Pearson says, it's about the size of a coffee table. Um, so, right, like, right. you'd notice it and you might be like, huh, that looks kind of weird, but it would not inspire awe in you. Like, awe is not what right, you would have right. if you didn't know what it was. You would, The awe comes from the ideas associated with it, not from the actual physical artifact, not from the item, the description of the item itself. That's why in Lotro, in the game, when they depict things that they want to be awe-inspiring, they tend to make them ten times bigger than they are in the book because they want to, you know, when you come around the corner, you should be like, The Balrog is huge. Yes, the Balrog is also uh, not quite ten times, but probably four times the size in the game that he was in the book um, for the same reason. Um, But but again, and and that's, that's how they address the because what they're trying to do is trying to to depict something visually in such a way that it inspires a similar like they want it to be the the thing the thing inspires awe in the book so we want to try to inspire awe even though it means we've got to we've got to change this stuff not saying we make the same choice again as i'm not saying we do this by making the silmarils the size of watermelons but we maybe 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 they're magical and they and they they change size is to fit the brow of whoever's wearing it yeah Perfect. Crickets. <laughs> uh, no, I'm no, I, I'm contemplating it. I mean, Are you? I mean, that's a that's a suggestion worth thinking about because um, because it, it would allow us to essentially we could just decide for each scene where they, where they're depicted. We can make a decision about how to do it. And the ring does that. 
That's true, actually. Yep. I hadn't thought of that. And it doesn't doesn't come across as too silly in the movies. Right. Right. I mean, it's different, right? Like and they don't they don't dwell on it a lot in the movies either. Which yeah. Is yeah. Really and the thing is, we don't have to do it that much, right? Like, like. I, I personally, I'm I, I one of the things I'd advocate for is after initial introduction, Silmarillion should be on screen as little as possible. Um, just because which would be easy because Fanor's concealing them. Is a character, right? Yeah, the more they're on screen, the the less awe they will inspire. But if you just think sort of under what scenarios will we depict them? Sort of initially when Fanor reveals them, but then he hides them. Um, right. Then we should show uh, we should show Melkor stealing them, but he need not actually. They don't need to kind of. So basically, the next next setting would be Melkor in possession of them after stealing them, the confrontation with Ungoliant, etc. The next time we depict them, they'll be on his crown, his crown and then right? yeah. they're kind of just there for for the next twenty seasons, um, and we don't have to show the crown that much. And then the next time will be Baron and Luthien's story. And then we really, you know, then, and then they become a, they basically become jewelry, sort of at that point. So like, I mean, we don't, we basically, if we were to do this, like, let's let them change shape, size, etc. We only have to pick about two or three. Right. Sure. And we can actually show them getting the one getting smaller to fit into theirs. Or or we don't even have to make a big deal. I mean, as long we, we do want to make sure it's not a stumbling point, so people think we're just being inconsistent and screwing up. But. Um, right. <laughs> Um, hey, weren't those things smaller the last time I saw them? But, um, but I agree with Marielle's point that the the size matters much less than their than their luminosity. And as she further then points out, if they're bright enough, their size is going to be a bit vague anyway. Um, That's and I think the primary uh, um, alterability, right? The pri- the primary adjustability of the Silmarils should not even be there. Should be their brightness, not their size. Right? There are sometimes yeah, when they when they are on Morgoth's crown, I think they're very dull. I think they barely shine. That's that's true. What if, what if, what if instead of sort of what if like what if we think of them almost as like points of light, where we never actually reveal, we never actually like, reveal their physical form a at solid all. Solid crystalline structure, but they're right. just points of light actually, that kind of with, fr- yeah, with sort of a suggested hazy shape, depending on kind of the luminosity. I um, I I I kind of like it. I kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Me too. Um, Me too. Uh, yeah, that we never really see. So, like, you know, one of the questions that people were asking on the discussion board: should they be faceted or should they not be faceted? What if you just can't 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 even tell? Right. Now, we don't even answer that question. I, because there's a sense in which there's certain decisions uh, in, in doing like this type of adaptation that I really just rather not make, mm-hmm. just because I just don't, <laughs> because I don't think there's a right decision. There's some that are unavoidable. We must cast someone to play Luthia. Right. Even though, no offense to women everywhere, whoever we cast <laughs> will be disappointed. Right. Right. Like, right. It's just impossible. Right. Same thing. Same thing for Dior. Who could we possibly cast? Right. right. You know, and it, it's, 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 and it's the sort of thing where, where it's sort of unfortunate that we have to make that decision. Um, that's kind of, you know, that's how I feel about, 
Like, I feel that way about Sauron in the Lord right. of the Rings films. I right. just kind of wish that, that I never, ever had that mental image of the, like, giant guy in the black suit armor. Exactly. You because know, it's just... I don't oh, know I was going to say the giant like. eye. We call this... Worse than that. Even worse. Even worse, yeah. yeah. Those are just... I could... I could I'd be much happier if I could go on living without those mental images. But, you know, but yes. if you're going to make a screen ap- adaptation, you kind of have to make some decisions like that. It's inevitable, and we'll have to make some like that. But when given an opportunity not to make a decision like that, such as, you know what, all we really know about these Silmarils is that they're jewels and they're really freaking bright. Exactly. Fine, why don't we just have people walking around with some kind of glowing point of light? Right. Just, you can't, all you can really see is, you know, like... Oh, they've got it in their hand. I don't see a faceted jewel. I just see like a bro- like, like a small burning light. sun in their hand. Right. Um, yeah. We 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 will call this segment. Dave passionately defends Christopher Tolkien's resistance to making movies from <laughs> from Tolkien's works. <laughs> That's exactly Christopher Tolkien's argument about why he didn't want films made. Um, precisely what you just said. And that's exactly, I believe that's exactly what Christopher means when he says that he found, you know, that that statement that he made that everybody kind of laughed at. And he was like, I think that my father's books are particularly ill-suited to be rendered into into individual adaptation. Um, uh, and everyone was like, oh, ha, ha, ha. Right. But that's exactly what he, I think that's exactly what he meant. Um, so this is actually, this could be the... Yeah, well, but scoffed at it, I should say. Anyway, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is. But but I think see, it's it's. But the thing is, if you think about it, it's ex- the more fantastic, the more kind of mythic. A word. Think think how uninhibitedly, how eagerly, filmmakers are now making films about fantastic and mythic things these days. Right. I mean, that's been a major thing over the last you know fifteen twenty years. Um, and, you know, now that our computer special effects are better, people feel like they can do those things. And so now they will, right, without making it look hokey like the, you know, like the Kraken in 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea, you know, back in the old days of film. Um, but I, um, I, but it doesn't, the fact that you can now make those visual effects look convincing doesn't change the fundamental problem or challenge of of adaptation so hakan says so we're quitting then <laughs> no we're not quitting hakan but it is we do we do have to acknowledge this challenge and there are and i think dave if i'm properly understanding your point um we should not be over eager to we should not be going out of our way to pigeonhole things we don't absolutely have to pigeonhole right well and I, they're just my personal feeling, like some of these, these discussions about, you know, like I, I guess, I, I, I guess, I guess I could see how um, folks might be, you know, they're, they're like a different person um, with different interests in the world might look and say, might might look and say, think that it would be really fun to try and come up with the right design for the Silmarils. And mm-hmm. like, is it facet? Is it not? What shape, size? Well, I, I, I can see how maybe somebody who's really individual design might say like, oh, that's a fun problem. And I really think I can nail it. I can find the right one. Right. I just look at that and I think, no, nothing you do will be right. And there seems to be a way around this. And the way around it, in fact, to me, seems more correct. That like, right. 
Right. These things are supposed to have the light of the trees. They're the kinds of things that when, when you put it on the bow of Vingulot and it's sailing through the cosmos, you can still see it. Uh, and yet somehow somehow the thing sitting on the bow of Vingulot and sailing through the cosmos, you can still see it from Arda, and yet the people on the ship are not blind. <laughs> yes. Right? Like, yes. That kind of suggests that like this is not we shouldn't maybe it's not right to think of these things as physical objects that have a particular right. know, uh, carrot or something, right. but in fact something a little more insubstantial. I don't know. Right. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Has anyone ever thought about that fact that you can simul- that simultaneously people people that you can see this thing from light years away, and then at the same time people can be feet away from it and not be blind? Yeah, it's like every time every time. Uh, like if if Aaron were wearing it, right? It's like every time he turns his head, and everyone's like, "Ah, you know, <laughs> my bleeding eyes!" <laughs> right? It's, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, having the Silmaril bound on your brow if you're Arendel is non-trivial. Um, in fact, you could write a really comical short story paralleling that to to Midas, right? Uh, but anyway, no, it's not like that, and it's 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 not like Midas. But anyway, um, you know, to color. This point, now I'm I'm going to go way ahead here. But okay. To this point, when we get to the Eye of Sauron, which I know is way far away, yeah. This came and this idea actually came to me. I think during the webathon we were having a discussion last week. Yes. Is I think it was when you were talking to Maggie. Is, it was. Let's have that be like a thing, you know, where. Anatar, you know, Sauron from early on. I mean, he could even start now. My eye is upon you. Right. Meaning, I'm watching you, buddy. Right. That, he, that becomes a thing. So then it becomes the eye of Sauron, not right. physically the eye of Sauron. We clearly establish the metaphorical status of that the phrase from very yes. early I'd like on. To start, I mean, now, even when he talks to Gothmog, he could be saying <laughs> yeah, that. You know what that's I mean? It's right. Like, let's just establish that it's a metaphor, please. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. That's another one. Um, one last Silmaril question, though. What color is the light? Is it white light? Well, I think one. Well, there's three. It? It's got to be the at the. It's well, got to be the mingling of the lights, right? Gold, right. Well, you know, what we definitely can't. It, do? Or do they simultaneously? I mean, do they kind of like shimmer gold and silver? Like you can't quite tell if it's gold or silver. You know, we definitely can't do. We definitely can't make it multicolored as though it's been passed through a prism. Correct. <laughs> yes. Or, or, or that it's been, or that it's been put into the washing machine with other clothes. Speaking yeah, of which, you should you should mention that YouTube. Oh yes, Dave. Did you see this? Um, uh, Brotherhood Studios, which is an awesome YouTube channel, they make stop action. He makes stop action uh, uh, Lego movies. Um, he's the one who right. you might have. Some of these were in circulation. Oh, these have been in circulation for a while, and he does lots. He's been doing. He's been working for Disney actually, making Star Wars uh, videos. But um, oh my gosh, uh, he's been actually commissioned by Disney, I believe. Uh, but anyway, uh, he's really funny. He was the one who did like the uh, the whole Hobbit movies in sixty seconds. Um, the, the Lego version; those were those were getting pre- pretty widely circ- yeah. circulated around the time of the third film, for instance. Um, anyway, he, he's 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 really funny. He he made one for us. He ma- he made one for Mythgard and Signum because he's a he's a, a big fan of ours and listens to the podcast and to the Mythgard Academy classes and stuff while he animates a lot. And um, 
uh, anyway, so he, he, he made one, the Saruman of Many Colors uh, YouTube video, um, which... Uh, oh, man, I gotta go watch it's this. It's good. Yeah, it's good. It's short. It it's he, short. He, he's really cute, because at the end, then he does a little pitch for Signal, which is cool. I just... I just th- there's one, actually, he's, uh, he's he sent me a one that he's... That he just finished. It's I don't think it's been quite released yet, but um, it's uh, it's it's the entire Harry Potter saga in ninety seconds, oh my um, gosh. which is really really well done. And my favorite moment. There's all this like frenetic action of you know everything's happening really fast, and then we just see Harry, Ron, and Hermione slowly treading through the woods for about ten seconds, which is the, <laughs> which is his synopsis of the Deathly Hallows. <laughs> It's hilarious. <laughs> it's so well done. It's just hysterical. Has he released the efficient one yet? The, uh, yes, yes, the efficient one, yes. Yes, he did. That's another one. That's another he did. one that's about efficient. That is really cute. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, okay, so as far as the Light of the Silmarils go, I I, I do think that they, they should have gold and silver kind of mixed together. We can make them kind of twinkle and sparkle and change. Um, it does, it should not just be pure white light. There should be something kind of, they're both, there should be something, you know, some kind of mystique to it. Like it's not just a flashlight, but secondly, also that it should recall the light of the two trees. Um, so like you've got the mingling of the lights and there you go is I think that sort of the dominant light of it. But though I, I would not object to the, the color of the Silmarils light changing slightly under certain circumstances. Um, I, I would. I'm not saying I would definitely do that, but I could. I could. I could. I would be open to that idea. Um, all right, we're running so, out of time. So you're thinking. Go you're ahead. Thinking like very briefly, you're thinking like maybe the Silmarils even sort of exhibit kind of the same sort of uh, cycle as the trees. Well, no, not necessarily. What I'm thinking, though, we could do that. But what I'm thinking is the Silmarils. The Silmarils, that is kind of a cool idea, but the Silmarils should have, the Silmarils are almost alive, is what, is the impression that I would want to give. Like, they, they, they have, they have a kind of life of their own, almost. Not quite, but almost. Um, Such that, like, as I was suggesting before, I think they look different. I think their light shines both less and possibly differently. Maybe when they're on his crown, they are they're, I mean, I, I'm I, I'm thinking Brian wants the Silmarils to 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 shine like hotter and and like to you know to be objecting to the presence of evil. I think they can be pretty darn bright when they're burning his hand, but I think when they're sitting when they're like sitting on his crown in like when 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 the Silmarils are in captivity, I think they should they should look downtrodden. You know, I think they should they should be at the at their dimmest, and I think yeah, like, defeated. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. illumination equivalent of a frowny face. Exactly. That's just what they're doing. <laughs> they're like, you know, uh, yeah, you can put us on your crown, but you can't make us be pretty for you. Like we're, we're going to be as, as non-pretty as we are possible, capable of being as Silmarils. Uh, and th- but then they, they, you know, so when so I, I would not object to seeing the Silmarils luminosity not just the level but the, the the quality of it you know the color of it change when like uh you know baron is holding out in his hand when it's burning melkor's hand when um when uh, uh when luthien puts the necklace on when arendel has it bound upon his brow you know at these particular important silmaril moments um 
to have to to show as if the Silmarils themselves are responding to what's happened to them, as if they are conscious of what's happening, and um, and uh, and and kind of react. Um, I, I think I, I would I I, I would kind of I'm not totally uh, I'm not totally wedded to it, but I kind of like that. Um, anyway, anyway. Um, the last thing we need to to do, and I think we can we can we we can just kind of point to some of these things, but I want to make sure we bring it up. Third generation subplots. Which which other characters do we want to introduce, and what what do we want them to do? Segwaying the first one that has to happen, obviously, in today's episode is Galadriel's hair, right? The Galadriel's hair episode. Um, and how old is Galadriel at this time? Okay, uh, wait. Earlier, uh, I can't remember what he said. What did he say about preliminary question? When they become adults. Pre- preliminary question: How much time passes between the making of the Silmaril and the banishment? Mm. Do we have can, uh, or, 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 to make that question more explicit? Can we have the, some of the youngers grow up during that time? Could Galadriel be a child, like nine or ten? At the time when he wants to take, he, he he asks for her hair and she refuses. But then we see her being at least a teenager, so, you know, or or young adult by the time of the. Re- she needs to be a grown up when they leave, right? We can't have Galadriel leaving Valinor in like a fit of teenage rebellion, right? Or, or or you know, being like a gullible, you know, eleven year old or something like that. Um, I think. So, or, or, I mean, or is that what you guys want? I, I can't, th- I mean, I have a hard time imagining like a 12 year old Goadriel having the desire to rule realms, uh, uh, you know, herself, right? I, she's got to be a grown up when she makes the choice to leave. And if she's not, then it's right. going to look mean. Like if they say she can't come back, you know. Because <laughs> she was a 12 year old and she had a tantrum. <laughs> she had a tantrum, right? And and how petty does that make the Valar look to be like, well, Galadriel, you can't come back because you made your choice. And she's like, I was 10. You know, like, you know, we can't, like, that. that's just wrong, right? So uh, she young has adult. to be an adult. I would say young adult. You know, I'd say the equivalent of like a human 20s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a human college student would be fine for Galadriel yes, when she makes make her, her choice. Um, but, uh, but, but, are we okay with time passing to have her be young, to have her be like, you know, uh, like middle school Galadriel when she refuses her hair, but her to be college Galadriel, you know, collegiate Galadriel when she, when she goes, you know, like at the time of the kinslaying. I don't have a problem with that, like thinking about it, but it, it does again, super underscore the issue of making it not creepy. Right. Right. Now you've but, got, though, actually, like, you know, in its way, in its, I mean, you're right. Like it kind of raises the creepiness stakes if she's, if she's, if she's underage yeah, that way. Yeah, but, cool. but I don't yeah. think in some ways, I think it also kind of makes it easier. Right. Um, if she's, if the actress playing Galadriel is sexually mature, like, I mean, if, if she's in her, tw- if she looks in her twenties, when he's asking for her hair and, and like, so coming up to a f- fully grown woman and saying, can I have a lock of your hair? Like that seems to have like almost inescapable sexual undertones to me. I, I have a hard, I would have a hard time. Whereas if it's a kid, like, yes, if the sexual undertones are there, they're far creepier, 
but I think it's easier to avoid them, actually. Um, you know, just as, just as you can say to a, to a, like to a nine-year-old girl, you can say that you're cute and adorable without it, without having sexual overtones to that. Whereas you can't say you're cute and adorable to a 17-year-old girl without it having sexual overtones, right? Like the latter is always creepy. The former can, the former, if it is creepy, is super creepy, but it can be non-creepy. Do you see what I mean? So I think, I think, um, so we can actually obviate it. Yeah. I I think we can obviate it by making it just be, he makes a request to say, you know, that, that he's, he is interested in her hair and, and, and so it makes it Maria. That's exactly what I was thinking. It can be the more striking that she as a child stands up to an adult. Right. And says no. Right. And refuses to allow him. Of course we have to be careful. Which is kind of interesting. Right. 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 Yeah. So we, we do have to make we have to be careful not to just make her look like a brat. Right. Um, uh, you know, or, or totally whimsical or something like that. Um, she but, could be very precocious. She, we could we could model her after Maggie. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Very smart. That, not precocious, but just really smart. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. She has she has guts and a mind of her own. Exactly. Right. Right. Even though she's yeah. young. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I like that. And actually the passing of time is good because then by the time we come around the relationship between Noldor and the, between the Noldor and Melkor is different in the next episode. Cause he's been around for a long time. Right. I mean, now they've been living right. with him for, you know, an undetermined amount of time. Now the kids that we met as kids like Goadriel in this episode are grown up. Who knows how long it's been? It could have been centuries for all we know. Right. Um, and that's good. I think that's, 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 that's fine. That's nice. Um, but, uh, okay. All right, cool. So, um, uh, so there's Galadriel. Um, another point I would make on the subject of stuff that needs to happen sooner rather than later, if it's going to happen at all, Erethel. So Erethel, Fingolfin's, uh, uh, daughter, right? Um, the sister of Turgon and Fingon, um, the one who marries Aeol, uh, and is the mother of Maeglin. Right. Okay. So Arathel, she's friends with the sons of Feanor. That's got to happen. And if you think about it, there are precious few opportunities for Arathel to become friends with the sons of Feanor if it doesn't happen now. Um, uh-huh. After the banishment and the breach, things are going to be tough. Right. Um, we still have to decide what we're going to do with the sons of Feanor, but that's a choice for next week or for next session or the session after that. Um, that is during the banishment. How about Turgon? We need Turgon too, don't we? Don't we, we need to show some we do. brother-sister relationship we do. going on? There? But one problem at a time. The first problem is Arathel. <laughs> so I'm thinking this can be really simple. Like Arathel can be like Goadriel's age or she can be a little older than Goadriel. Maybe if, oh, if Goadriel's sure. like 10 or 11, maybe Arathel is like 14 or something. You know, she's, she's like kind of that age. We could have her just, she could be she could be hanging out with, playing with, riding horses with the sons of Feanor. Uh, I mean, I think showing that she is their childhood friend kind of makes yeah. the her choice to go and find them again a little bit more touching, I think, when it's going to happen eventually, when she leaves Gondolin. So the right. nice thing is that no specific stories need to be attached with this. All we have to do is introduce her by name and show her hanging out with them. And then we can invoke that as like we were childhood friends. Um Later on, we don't have to have a plot. We don't have to have a story 
that has to happen necessarily right. with her and the sons of Feanor. But we need to get we need to we need to get to get her in there. And Marie, yeah, Mytheros and Fingon. We should come back to Mytheros and Fingon. They were they were kids in the last episode, right? They were kids in episode eight. Um, we need to, yes, we do need to have the adult Mytheros and Fingon to show how their friendship has continued and matured, and and uh, you know they are now fast adult friends. Good, good. Um, uh, ooh, that's really interesting, Marielle. Marielle says, uh, when we're, th- when we depict, uh, uh, Arithel and the sons of Fanor, should we be thinking about Myglin and Idril? Like what their relationship ought to have been? Like show a, show a non-twisted, you know, Myglin and Idril situation. Okay. It would be really cool to have some kind of visual parallels to, 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 to be kind of prepared with so that when, uh, when, Myglin is is uh, is sort of becoming friends with Idril. It can kind of look the same briefly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, okay, cool. So, um, uh, so, so that's Arathel. No, but anyway, so Turgon. Uh, but you're because you're right about Turgon. He's another big one, right? Um, and specifically, specifically. The scene that gets mentioned that I want to make sure we do somehow, but it's going to be really, really hard, is the reference that the narrator of the Silmarillion makes, which in the context of the published Silmarillion is, a, is, is, is an almost cryptic line um, about how whenever back in Valinor, Melkor met Turgon, str- this feeling of foreboding comes over him, like the foreboding of his own doom. He is afraid right. of Turgon. Um. This is the time that has to happen in next episode at the absolute latest. I kind of think this episode would be better. Um, yeah. How do we do that? Does he have premonitions? Does he have. Which he's not going to share you know. with anybody. Right. So uh, unless we're prepared to do a voiceover, we've got to do we've got to silently convey. We've got to wordlessly convey the fact that when he sees this. This kid, you know, this like teenage elf, he uh, is afraid. Um, and have that not just look completely random and inexplicable. No, no, it is going to be inexplicable. But see, that's where I think we have to convey. This is where we have to convey. This is not like a strange phobia of on, on his part, right? This is uh, this is him having a foreboding of future doom. That's the thing that I find tricky. Having him look worried, even having him look afraid, would be odd, inexplicable, weird, but easy, right? Non-verbally conveying, I am having a presentiment of my own certain doom, that's harder. (laughs) Much harder. Yes. Um... But fortunately, we have a team of excellent scriptwriters who can handle that kind of problem. So just make that happen. Turgon, Melkor, foreboding of doom, that needs to occur. It can be connected with Arathel. We can do we it can... with sounds. You don't even have to do it visually. You could do it with some kind of, you know, that's true. something. That's, that's true. There Maybe this is a Philip project. Philip, give us a foreboding of doom. Melkor foreboding his future yeah, doom theme go. that we can play while he's looking at Turgon. Yeah, there you go. There you go. That's no right. problem. Um... 
And this could be, I mean, you know, we, we, we don't have to have separate scenes for all of these things. I mean, we could easily show, um, like we could easily lump together Arathel playing with the sons of, of Feanor and Goadriel's hair. That's nothing could be more natural, right? Feanor comes in and there's his sons, right. And they're, and they're, and their best buddy Arathel, right. And, uh, and there's Goadriel hanging out with Arathel and the rest of them, right. And then is when he. And it, yeah, and in fact, it could happen in their presence, which would even make it less creepy, wouldn't it? And that's exactly what I was just thinking. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, uh, yeah, if he approaches her alone, you know, if he's like, little girl, come into my private study, I have a question for you. Like, that's when it starts getting inescapably <laughs> and ho- horribly creepy. So absolutely. Are Goadriel and Arathel friends? They could be, but the, but not, I mean, I think Arathel's, they're not buddies, like Arathel's buddies with the sons of Feanor, I would think. Um but there's no reason for them not to be associated or, you know, maybe it could be the other way around. Maybe, you know, maybe the two of them. Gladwell's a couple of centuries younger. So She's exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. right. Who knows? Um, yeah. Um, Keligorm. Keligorm and Huon, of course, is another thing that needs to happen soon. And I'm thinking it should oh, happen in this episode, too, because if it doesn't happen in this, ep- we're, we're going to be in the midst of of conflict and, and tension among the, the I sons. It's going to be a two-hour episode, you know? Two-hour <laughs> mid-season episode or something. It's good. A lot of the things like that, that we've been talking about, I think, could be established relatively efficiently. But, um... <laughs> but, um... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when the scriptwriters get it, get it together for this, you're going to be, Curse you, Coriolzin! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um... Marie asks a great question. Does er- does Orme speak the languages of birds and beasts? Um, yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Let's absolutely do that. that at some point. Yeah, he's let's have him talk to 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 birds and beasts. I, I, absolutely. I'm 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 all in favor of that. I like it. It it because expo- because also remember remember the other person who uh uh talked to beasts, you know, who like was friends with the beasts was Baron, right? So the whole Baron Kelligorm thing, right? That I like it. I mean, I, I like that parallel, that connection between them, right? Um, uh, yeah, Kelligorm. No, I know. I'm talking about Kelligorm. Oh, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kelligorm. Kelligorm should, should talk in the language of birds and beasts. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's what I'm talking about. Um, absolutely. I like it. Um, Orome does. Kelligorm does. He learns it from Orome. Why not? Absolutely. Um, uh, and he's got to be. We we have to show the absolute devotion. We need Huan being adorable, right? Um, oh yeah. Do we need a particular scene in which, like, their bond Obviously, is Huan formed? Be a <laughs> oh my goodness, that's a great question. What species is Huan? See, that, Dave. Here we are again, right? We've got to make Huan into a particular yeah. dog, right? And thus, Huan ceases to be able to be every dog once he becomes he a particular change? breed. Huh? Oh, yeah. I was going to say, can he change form? I mean, he can. Probably until well, he becomes Kelligorms. Rebecca Smith very uh, uh, very sensibly says, wolfhound? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that would make sense. You know, it that, would make that's sense. Kind of obvious. Do we want to be obvious about it? Like an Irish wolfhound, big, you know, like huge. Yeah, I mean, wolfhound. having him be Wolf huge man. seems very sensible. Um, you know, a Great Dane would be yeah. Something a wolfhound. I think wolfhound. Wolfhound makes sense to me. He should be big. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's got to be big, 
you know, we can't have we can't have uh, who on the lap dog as adorable as that would chihuahua. be. Chihuahuas are mean. They're mean. Chihuahuas are super mean. They're mean. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not saying that that wouldn't add a little bit of a something to his fight with Draugluin and Karkaroth. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure that something is exactly what we want to add. He rides an Orme saddlebag when he rides, you know, real cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I do think something like an Irish wolfhound or, or of that ilk. Yeah. Um, it could be uh not exactly an irish wolfhound but margaret suggests a hungarian wolfhound i don't know my wolfhounds well enough to know the difference but 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 yeah that that kind of uh wolfhound seems 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 right seems uh in fact it's almost that makes him almost a visual piece of foreshadowing right to 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 dog people who recognize that he's a wolfhound they will be prepared for the plot of the story that is to come they're like, oh, I saw that coming. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But only if you know, if you reckon, everyone else would be totally oblivious. But that's cool. I like that. Okay, so who owns a wolfhound? Um, I'm gonna have to go Google Hungarian wolfhound now and see what he actually looks like or whatever. But um, Dude, I've actually met an Irish wolfhound up close and personal, and they're pretty daunting and awesome. I bet. Dogs, I, I bet. Um, and okay. this one actually spoke Irish. Which is <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. Like Sparrow's dogs, um, who only respond to, to, to Gaelic commands. True, really? I mean, I met him over in Ireland that his owner only spoke to him in yeah. Gaelic. Yeah. No, Sparrow does that. Like, she, she trains know. her dogs in Gaelic okay, so that they won't respond to anybody else. Ah. <laughs> they only, only answer to commands in Gaelic. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, it's pretty clever actually. Uh, but anyway, okay. So uh, the last one that I don't have much to say about him and I don't think he needs a major role, Magor. We, we need to have Magor playing music at some point. This should happen, right? And again, it could be lumped in. It could be in the same scene with Arathel hanging out with the other brothers, right? But, you know, whatever. But 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 Maglor playing music has to has to happen and possibly even some way of conveying Maglor's local supremacy in music and everyone else's admiration for his music. That's just another thing that needs establishing. Okay. <clears throat> All right. We are come to the end of our time here. I think we did a lot of good work today. Covered a lot of really big general issues as well as uh, uh, this was a very, um, very appropriately discursive uh, uh, discussion here today, I think. Um, But uh, okay, so um, uh, questions for next time. A bunch of questions for next time. Um, hey Corey, look at the episode notes. Look at second page of the episode notes. The second page of the episode notes. Oh, holy cow! Wolfhounds are huge. That's an Irish wolfhound. <laughs> good grief! Okay. Sounds like a pretty good candidate. Yeah. All right. Okay. So <laughs> we don't even have to like. We don't even have to like. It doesn't even need to necessarily be oversized. Yeah. Yeah. I I I just copied it to the listeners. Sorry about that. I copied it. I it, I, I actually I probably could find. The, uh, the URL for this. So while you're closing up, I'll see if I can send it out in the chat. So folks yeah. Can get it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So just, just Google Irish Wolfhound and you'll see they're enormous. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, no, as, I, I agree. That's absolutely who on right there. That's, that's, that, that's it. Okay. Questions for next time. Question. So next time we remember is the episode uh, where, uh, which is going to, we're going to have Fanor drawing his sword on Fingolfin and Fanor being banished by the Valar. So here are my questions. Obviously, we have to think about how we present the fiction, the friction between Fanor and Fingolfin. How do we show that growing up to the point where it where it boils over the way that it does? How involved should the should the third generation kids be in this conflict? 
Um, are they innocent standers by? Are they standing by appalled as their dad start fighting? Do they start arguing too? Does the tension go all the way down? How far down <clears throat> in the houses of Feanor and Fingolfin does the tension go? What do we want to do with that? That's my second question. Third question. How, how old are they at this point? They're all they're all adults by now. Everyone's an adult. Everyone's an adult. By by episode ten, everyone's a grown up because everyone's got to be. It's time to be making grown up decisions for everybody. So they've all got to be. I was just thinking it would be if, at least for 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 the children, you know, for like Feanor's children, Fingolfin's children. It would be amusing if we had like a couple that were young on the younger side and we're getting into tussles. <laughs> right, right, yeah, exactly. The, uh, I mean, the, we could show. Pro- no, I think we probably shouldn't have time passing in during an episode in that way, probably. No. But anyway, yeah. So, but uh, but you know, they could still be kind of uh, you know they could start walking around with like gangs of other people, and it could still kind of look like West Side Story. So we'll see. I don't know. It could be like that. Who knows? Okay. So, so third question. How, do we depict the Valar as being simply absent? What role, if any, do the Valar play in this whole ongoing growth of, of, of conflict? So that's my third question. Fourth question. Do we have a hearing or counsel before Manway concerning Melkor's involvement? I'm referring here, there is an episode in the Book of Lost Tales. This happens in the Book of Lost Tales. When they figure, in the published Silmarillion, as soon as Feanor draws his sword on Fingolfin, the Valar just kind of figure out, everyone's like, oh, this is probably, Melkor, right? They, they very quickly come to the idea that Melkor, like they, they sort out very quickly and off stage that Melkor was at the root of all of these problems. There's an actual, not exactly a trial, but there's an actual hearing, um, among the Valar in the Book of Lost Tales where they talk about it and figure it out together. Do we do that? Do we want to go back to the Valar? Do we want to have a Valar-only session? Um, or do we want to keep the narrative remote from the Valar throughout this session? So, so okay. So, again, so three, four, four questions so far. How do we present the friction between Fanor and Fingolfin, right? And it, its growth and, and development and where does it end up? How involved are the third gen... Are there kids in this conflict? Do we depict the Valar as being, how do we depict the Valar, if at all, as being involved in the growing conflict as it's growing? Do we have an explicit hearing or counsel among the Valar and before Manway where they figure out Melkor's involvement? And finally, what exactly should the terms of Feanor's banishment be? Is he, he's exiled? Is he, do his sons go with him? Um, Is he like, what what were what... yeah let me just leave it leave there. what exactly should the terms of his banishment be um how is that going to be expressed like what's he being punished for and how is it and so here basically there are kind of two sides of this question what is the rationale of the valar behind his banishment is one element of the question and how is fanor going to interpret it is the other half of that question right um, my last question, which is not really a separate question, is how do we depict Finway in his choice to go along? Um, but that 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 doesn't that's not necessarily a separate issue, because uh, really, when we're talking about his banishment and the terms of, terms of his banishment, we're going to have to be talking about again: do his sons go? Do uh, do, do, do you know his dad does go? Um, you know how uh, how how sort of essential uh, is or you know how how do we play that? Um, okay. Um, uh, 
Marie reminds me the next script discussion will be Saturday, November 12th at 7.30 to discuss uh, episode two and any other needed revisions. Wait, you guys have regressed to episode two? Um, it's probably my fault if you're going... Uh, if you, oh, does Nerdenel go? Great question, Marie. Another good thing to be asked. Does Nerdenel go into banished into exile with Fanor? Um, okay, links are found on the discussion boards. If you if you look in the script section of the discussion boards, you'll find the links for the for 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 the meeting. Um, yeah, so you're going back to rewrite episode two, right? Okay, all right, I understand. Okay, all right, very good. And I put a I put a, a link to that photo I shared in the chat if anybody's interested before we sign off. Yeah, just so that you know what we were exclaiming about. Um, but yeah, for listeners at home, out of out of chronology, yeah, just just Google Irish wolfhounds. You'll you'll see. Irish wolfhounds. You'll see. You'll see what I mean, the kind of thing we're talking about. Um, okay. All right. Very good. So thanks everybody for joining us. And this was I think I think we had a productive time here, everybody, guys. So very good. And I will say thanks for listening and Godspeed.